Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. Comfortably. On the right, your favorite conservative cousin, Malik Abdul, and you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. How are you guys doing this morning? It's doing great. Pretty good. Well, over the hump. It's I Thursday. I, I, you I look for around for me. It's like it's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Thursday. I woke Thursday. up thinking today was actually Wednesday. Really? So, yeah. Right. He enjoyed so much. He was like, "I need an extra <laughs> day. I need one more day." <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. How things with you? No complaints. Um, you have your trip to Europe planned? Yes. Yes, that is coming up. Oh, yeah. So we're going to be. I'm not sure what you guys. You're yeah, going to be so off for a time period too. Well, I think it's the, like the show the, is closed. The show is going to be closed. From, so from the 19th or just a week. to the 1st. Yeah, no, no, no. We'll be back the day after. We'll be back the day oh, okay. after. So they're going to be running it. After Christmas. Okay. So, yeah, it's going to be like one week right. up until yeah. Christmas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at that point. But, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, yeah. I'm ready. Wait, will you be there two weeks or one two week? Two weeks. One in Croatia, one in Romania. Romania. Interesting. I've never been. I, when we were doing the... Um, when my ex-wife and I were doing this kind of round-the-world trip, Romania was going to be one of the places that we were supposed to go to. My mom hits us up and tells us that she had been diagnosed with cancer. Oh, no. And so we had to make an emergency trip back home. She did not have cancer. The diagnosis was wrong. Thank goodness. Thank, yeah, thank goodness. Thank goodness, but I could have stabbed that doctor. <laughs> yeah. Um, to put it mildly. And it's like, dude, this is not your forte. You should, yeah, you should not like be that? making... How did yeah, you get it wrong? That is a massive screw up. Well, he was an um, internal medicine doctor. He's not a cancer doctor. Uh, he's not and an oncologist. He's not an oncologist. And he did some kind of procedure where he's like, okay, this looks like a mess. I think he might have cancer. In which oh case, my. I'm sitting in Warsaw and I'm like, oh my God, time I, to go home. Right, my mom is sick. Yeah. I gotta go home. Gotta go home. I got home day before Christmas. She wow. thought I was gonna she thought I was in Turkey or somewhere. But this is basically a do-over then. So you'll be Yeah, I get the opportunity to find right. out. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah. Thank goodness, Mama Thomas. I thank goodness, Mama Thomas, that thank you good- are okay. And I doctors, was, stay in your lane. Yes. I, I was told I, um, a doctor diagnosed me with diabetes. Really? Yeah. But it was false? Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and so he ended up going to some medical conference or something, and what he explained was apparently if you have, there's something that they found in the research that if you have the sickle cell trait... It gives you a high propensity for the other. Yeah. So, fortunately, I wasn't on medication yet. Yeah. But oh my he gosh. had told me Interesting. That, yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. Well... I'm still in the stay in your lane mode. We're going to have a doctor in tomorrow to discuss a totally different topic. But this just really should freak everybody out to know that... Your doctor is not always right. <laughs> oh, yeah. They are not. They are not infallible. They are humans. They are fallible. Oh, they screw up. And especially true. because I think because they're so educated that they convince they, themselves of their own brilliance. Yes, they yeah. convince themselves of their own brilliance, or they're educated beyond their own intelligence. Yeah, oftentimes. 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 Most. And in time. fact, this brings me to a story that uh, I might have shared with you guys about the the LSAT for lawyers. About Mm-mm, some, mm-hmm. yeah, some yeah. schools, some universities are looking at dropping the LSAT for people to enter law school. Interesting. So if and when that happens, 
There are some schools already that have dropped the LSAT requirement uh-huh. for law school. <laughs> so it'll be a slippery slope, as we've seen with most things. Like you open the door for one, like the Patriot Act, right? Like mm-hmm. it just leads into other things. So I'm just waiting for the day when they're like, the MCAT is not needed to go need to medical school. school. We don't need this. There's everybody coming to that. Totally fine. Hey, hey, professor, did I did I get a passing grade on like dissecting this lung? You got a smiley face. <laughs> right, I know, right? Good job. We don't give evaluations like that. It makes some people feel bad. We don't judge aspiring doctors, yeah. Jamaro. This is terrifying to me. Got to keep your confidence up. Right, and considering that we already, we right now have people that have to take the MCAT to get into medical school and carry certain grades before you can even get to that point. Right. If they're wrong now, imagine when lawyers don't need the, the LSAT and doctors don't need the MCAT. But see, and I'm everybody not a, graduates with a smiley face. Well, I'm, you know what? Speaking of... Yeah, go ahead, Because I'm not entirely <laughs> against that if they could show me that it's unnecessary. Meaning, if you could show me that the test is not commiserate with skill at the end of the process, I don't, I don't really very, care. Probably very few people. I, the articles that I read, I could have sworn I shared it with you guys. I don't remember that one. Malik saw it. Yeah, I actually remember that. Yeah. But no, I was saying that speaking of people, you know, who end up in places that, you know, necessarily, you know, they didn't take the political path. Well, Representative <laughs> Alexandria. <laughs> she was a Ocasio Cortez. Who was a bartender, Democrat of New York, is under investigation by the House Ethics Committee. The congressional body announced on Wednesday a statement released by acting chairwoman Susan Weil and acting ranking member Michael Guest announced an extension of the inquiry but did not provide any details on what the investigation is related to. Quoting, the acting chairwoman and acting ranking member of the Committee on Ethics have jointly decided to extend the matter regarding Representative Ocasio-Cortez. The statement reads, it also notes that the complaint was assigned to the committee by the Office of Congressional Ethics on June 23rd, 2022. I'm hearing, or at least I saw circulating online, that this may have something to do with the Met Gala, but... Oh, you mean tax rich? Yeah, the dress, the $20,000 dress that she, or the, the ticket for the event or something. I don't know. This yeah. is just what people are saying online. But we will be following that story, of course, of our favorite member of Congress. <laughs> <laughs> the New York Times members of the News Guilds are planning to walk out for a one-day strike on Thursday after union representatives and management were unable to reach a deal acceptable to both sides last week. What are we going to do, Malik, without the New York Times? For a whole day. Wow. (laughs) They might shut up for a day? What are we going to do? That's going to be very impactful for an entire (laughs) day. Last week, 1,100 New York Times Guild members signed a letter stating they would walk out if their demands were not met or a reasonable compromise could not be reached. Just after 7 p.m. last night, the Guild released a statement confirming their walkout. The New York Times Guild, and I'm reading from the statement, has announced their official decision to walk out tomorrow, Thursday, December 8th, due to the company's failure to bargain in good faith, reach a contract agreement with the workers, and meet their demands. The Times Guild 
bargaining committee offered to stay at the table for as long as it took to reach a deal and avert the walkout, but management walked away from the table a little before 7 p.m. and refused to return with even five hours to go. So the New York Times doesn't seem so pro-union nowadays. That's another story we'll definitely following up. Be interesting to see what happens tomorrow after the 24-hour period ended. Will they take it until the weekend, throughout the weekend, actually? Let's move to some international news. Hours after declaring rule by decree law and attempting to abolish the national legislature, Peruvian President Pedro Castillo was taken into custody by police as his base of support evaporated. Ironically, I was mentioning this just casually on yesterday about the Peruvian president being um, brought up, considered for a third time for impeachment. Well, now, I blame you. I blame you, Malik. Well, now That's on you. he's been taken into custody. <laughs> Peruvian police said in a statement on Wednesday afternoon that in pursuance of our duties prescribed in the law of the National Police of Peru, the officers detained the ex-president of Peru, Pedro Castillo. The announcement came after Castillo declared an exceptional emergency government on Wednesday morning and attempted to dissolve the Congress in order to block a planned vote on his removal from office, which in Peruvian politics is called vacating. NATO was aware, apparently, of the preparation for the latest attacks by Ukraine on Russian military airfields and the Saratov in the Ryazan regions. Konstantin Gavrilov, the head of the Russian delegation at the military security and arms control talks in Vienna, said on Thursday, quoting, NATO was aware of the preparations for the latest Ukrainian attacks on the Russian military airfields. We gave them an immediate response with a massive strike on the military command and control system, defense complex facilities, and related energy facilities in Ukraine. No one should have any doubt that this will happen every time if at of Ukrainian terrorism continue. Gavrilov said at a plenary meeting of the OSCE Forum for Security Cooperation. More international news talking about NATO. The process of joining NATO by Finland and Sweden was the fastest accession process to the bloc in its entire modern history. NATO Secretary General John Stoltenberg said on Wednesday, quoting, so far, this has been the quickest secession process in NATO's modern history. We have to remember that Finland and Sweden applied for membership in May and then in June. All NATO allies, also Turkey, invited Finland and Sweden to become members, Stoltenberg said in an interview doing FT Live. He also added that Hungary had promised to ratify the accession protocols early next year. The UN General Assembly on Wednesday adopted a resolution submitted by Russia on no first placement of weapons in outer space. The resolution was adopted after 122 countries voted in favor of Russia's initiative with 50 voting against and four abstaining from the vote. 
the resolution dubbed No First Placement of Weapons in Outer Space, urges all states, and particularly those with space capabilities, to consider the possibility of upholding as appropriate a political commitment not to be the first to place weapons in outer space. And on this day in history, 1941, U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, FDR, delivers Day of Infamy speech to U.S. Congress a day after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. We were just talking yesterday about famous speeches of presidents. FDR's Day of Infamy speech is definitely one of them. In 1965, you may not have remembered, but Pope Paul VI signs the Second Vatican Council. In 1966, U.S. and the USSR signed treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons in outer space. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll move on to 2004 then. The Cusco Declaration is signed in Cusco, Peru, establishing the Union of South American Nations. And those are your headlines for Thursday, December 8th. And you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. That's funny. She's like, skip that one. You can skip that one. (laughs) So let's do this. Let's take a break. We're going to come back with the monologue. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Jamal Thomas, Vanilla Chan, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I want to talk about credibility. Credibility. You know, even as kids, we used to have these nursery rhymes, like the kid, the boy who cried wolf the sky's falling, all of these type of things. But the Boy Cry Wolf is the most interesting one that I wanted to apply. Meaning even as children, we try to impress upon our kids certain, let's say values, certain ideas, certain things that they wouldn't necessarily be able to see as children because their brain hasn't developed to the point where they can kind of have that foresight of saying, oh, right, if I do this, this would be the consequence from the people around me. In the Boy Cry Wolf's standpoint, there's a wolf, there's a wolf. The people come out, they check for it. There's no wolf. He keeps doing it. And finally... He calls, there's a wolf, nobody comes out, and he is um, typically, he's eaten by that wolf. There's that. Now, the thing that it's trying to get across to you is this issue of credibility. The moment that you lose it, you may actually need it one day, and at the point where you need it, the people who you need to find you as a credible actor don't, and all sorts of consequences fall from that. I want to go into a conversation that Angela Merkel so, boy, let's, let's go with Macron first. Macron made the point of saying that Russia, once they negotiate or once there's some kind of negotiation, I guess he's probably saying at the point where Russia loses this and they go to the negotiating table, that there should be some kind of security guarantees given to Moscow. Now, again, this is great coming from Macron, who has no ability to do anything in this situation. But Macron is trying to grandstand. Macron wants to be the new leader of Europe in the same way that the former leader of Europe, Angela Merkel, basically held that position for all of those years, what, 2016 years, give or take, where she was basically the dominant force in Europe. Going from Macron, going back to that previous leader, she has an interview. And in that interview with Der Spiegel, 
she made this point, and I'm just right here. She said she alluded to the 1938 Munich Compromise. She compared the choices by Neville Chamberlain with Nazis to her decision to oppose Ukrainian membership to NATO when this was brought up in the 2008 summit in Brussels. Now, her point is, by holding off on the NATO membership and pushing for the Minsk Accords, she basically allowed Ukraine to buy time to better deal with a Russian attack. Now, if you go back for a moment, this is the same thing that Petro Poroshenko made this argument about right here. They're basically saying, right here, it says several media outlets, quote, I mean, our goal, Poroshenko declared, was to first stop the threat or at the very least delay the war to secure eight years to restore economic growth and to create a powerful armed forces. Now, understand what the Minsk Accords were. The Ukrainian government is knocked over, meaning the legitimate government of Ukraine gets knocked over. You get the situation where various people who are in other areas, let's say Donbass, say, yeah, no go. The government has been overthrown by a group of Russian, Hayden, um, Russophobic group pushed by the West. And considering there were ethnic Russian Ukrainians, their thought was, this is not in our best interest. This is not in our best health. And they decide to pull away. Now, this isn't wrong. It's the legitimate government, for all intents and purposes, has fallen. And by legitimate, I mean the government that was elected by the West and the, by the East and by the West, that government has basically fallen. So from the standpoint of legitimacy, the new government that the United States installed has none. That group realizing this is not good for our health, decided to try to declare independence. The Ukrainian military opens up an eight-year terror campaign on these particular groups. Were they wrong for pulling out, considering that the legitimate government was overthrown? I don't necessarily think so. I think they're legitimate and doing so, especially considering who took over and how that eventually panned out. The point that I'm making here is the Minsk Accords were a way of trying to settle this issue. To basically say, all right, these, these regions are still going to be under the auspices of Ukraine, even though they're going to have a certain level of autonomy and independence. Well, according to Merkel, I was only doing this to buy time, meaning I went through this um, format, this Normandy format. I went through all of these other world leaders. All of us sat down in a room and came to a deal. And at the end of this deal, my entire purpose of all of this was sub subterfuge. I was being duplicitous. I was able to, to dupe. Vladimir Putin. This is the argument that she's basically making to Der Spiegel. Now, whether this argument is legit, meaning whether she full well means this, or whether she's basically saying this in order to cover herself because she's getting criticism from being too close to Moscow, too close to Putin in this situation, is secondary to the point and almost doesn't even matter. What it looks as if, as this pinnacle of Europe who entered into these negotiations to settle a conflict was lying all throughout. Think about that. This is not, you know, this is supposed to be international relations where these guys are on the main international stage trying to settle a particular issue and you have all of these European leaders who get involved and guarantee the security, all of this stuff. And her argument is, I lied. I was lying. I was doing this purely to dupe Putin and to get Ukraine prepared for a military conflict. And again, I make the point of saying Petro Poroshenko basically said the same thing. I mean, we reported the story a few weeks ago where he gets spoofed by callers and basically admits to somewhat of the same thing. Now, what does this mean, though, from the standpoint of credibility? These world leaders, Macron, making the point of saying, well, Russia is going to have to get security agreement. 
You had a security agreement. This was something that was already there that you full well flagrantly ignored. And not just ignored, owned up to the fact that all of it was a lie. You had fully well prepared for a military engagement and a military conflict. And your thing was, we just need to buy enough time in order to, to make this work, to give Ukraine up to the point where it can actually be a threat or for that matter, a potential challenge. What does this mean for your credibility? What does this mean for your credibility? Meaning at the point where you are losing this conflict economically, you're losing it militarily on the ground, and you're in the situation where your various economies are under all sorts of pressure, you actually at this point need a deal. Meaning you need to be able to come to some kind of face-saving mechanism where you can extricate yourself from this particular conflict because all things being equal, the people who are faring the worst just so happened to be the same European leaders that was lying about engaging in legitimate and real negotiations. My point here is, how do you expect to have a negotiation partner across the table from you when everything that you've owned up to at this point has been complete, utter, astonishing duplicity? How? You cried wolf too many times, right? And to make this point that much more clear, even Putin has acknowledged this. In a recent meeting with wives and mothers um, of the troops that are fighting in Ukraine, Putin acknowledged that it was basically a mistake to the degree to the Mets Accords, that all things being equal, this is something that should have been handled on the ground militarily. And if you listen to the speeches that he's made, he's even made this point throughout on some level, basically making a point of saying, look, we are in a situation now where this is existential. Well, we are not only being surrounded, but the government has basically been knocked over using the Ukrainian military as a tip of the spear to go after our country. All things being equal, this conflict probably should have been settled on the ground earlier and allowing this much buildup, this much time for the Ukrainian military to kind of accommodate itself, especially considering everybody at this point is basically saying they were basically lying in order to give them time. That was a mistake. Meaning the person who you need to be able to sit across the table with in order to come to some kind of deal to put all of this aside, or for that matter, more importantly, the person who you could have, you could have sat across the table with and came up with a legitimate, honest deal in order to settle this particular issue, that person believes that those negotiations and his working with the West was a mistake. That is disastrous. And yes, he is completely right, considering the way this basically fell out. How is Macron going to get some situation of security agreements when the, everybody else who's involved in this process, A, admitted that they were lying about it, and B, the person you need to basically make the deal with acknowledges that it was a mistake to negotiate with you in the first place? My point is, Russia is saying, look, we are perfectly willing to have talks. We're perfectly willing to come to some kind of agreement, providing our security guarantees are met, and for that matter, providing our military objectives are completed. Now, this was something that could have been done early on. And I guess the question here is, is this rhetoric or is this, in fact, reality, considering that there's no honest arbiter on the other side? Meaning there is nobody who you can basically make a deal with where you can come to some kind of conclusion of, okay, we made this deal. This settles this conflict for the foreseeable future with their security guarantees for both sides. We're good. How can you do that? when everything up to this point has just been radical duplicity. For that matter, even look at the way we describe this war and this conflict. Nobody brings up the fact that Ukrainian military have been killing ethnic Russian Ukrainians that gets pushed off the table. Nobody owns up or acknowledges the fact 
that Ukraine had put NATO into their constitution. Well, for that matter, the Minsk agreements were basically ignored. NATO was continually expanding. And even when Russia was screaming for security guarantees before this war basically started, they say Russia doesn't have security guarantees. And again, this flies in the face of what William Burns said in his memo, net means net, when he made the point of saying Russia considers themselves being encircled and considering if the West keeps pushing in Ukraine, Russia would have to make a decision on whether they get involved, a decision it doesn't want to do. Meaning all throughout this particular conflict, they have just lied, lied throughout. Russia is bombing its own power plant. The ghost of Kiev taking down 50 Russian fighters with one tank of gas. Russia is bombing the Zabrosia nuclear power plant. Even today, they don't want to own up to that reality that Ukraine is the one that is basically doing that. And even with the gas pumping, if you notice, that almost immediately vanished from the media. Almost immediately vanished. Their argument was Russia bombed its own pipeline despite having complete control over that pipeline. The point that I'm making here is if you are really looking for some kind of negotiation or where you may need a negotiated settlement. How do you get that negotiated settlement when you have basically lied all throughout and the person who you need that settlement with, who's basically running the table at this point, knows you're a liar, knows all of you are duplicitous, knows all of you aren't going to give a fair shake, not just from the standpoint of some kind of deal that is being made, but from even an assertion of reality itself. How do you expect to get out of this particular situation? You had Joe Biden, who's basically saying, putting down his terms by which he would negotiate or have a conversation with Putin. You had the spy masters who initially they said, oh, they weren't mentioning Ukraine. Well, come to find out they were, of course, talking on some level about Ukraine. You get various forces inside the Biden administration, some that are pushing for more negotiated settlement and others who don't want that. Meaning the military is looking at this from a realistic point of view. I think it was Mali basically made the point of saying there needs to be a political settlement for this particular issue because Mali is bright enough to full well understand that Ukraine in this situation is screwed. And again, none of this needed to really take place. And I guess my point here is how do you basically end this conflict when you've destroyed your credibility? I have no idea how you do that. And all things but equal, every incentive in the world from this standpoint, from, this, from the Russian standpoint, I would imagine, is to finish and settle this on the ground militarily in the way that Putin says they should have been done the first time around. And from his standpoint, the ruble is strong. They're making money from gas. The Russian gas is still going to wherever it needs to go to. He's um, diversified his um, uh, gas production, or for that matter, gas usage, to the east. And going forward, Russia has started to make deals with other countries. And you even had these close relationships with Saudi Arabia, Turkey, countries that were up one, at one point close allies of the United States. My point here is, from all things being considered, it's not the Russian position that is under the most stress here. It's the European position, the very people who basically lied themselves into this conflict. It also kind of misses the point that the duplicity in and of itself makes Ukraine more of a threat than what the West is owning up to. If they're arguing Ukraine is not going to be part of NATO, you don't have to worry about this, they already knew this wasn't a big deal, well, how can you trust these guys when they basically was lying up to the point of saying that they weren't, that they were actually trying to have a real legitimate deal? Meaning, if your argument as a NATO nation is Russia doesn't have to worry about this, we're purely a defensive organization, this is, we're just love and light, this is purely defensive, nothing to see here, folks, then why should they believe that considering everything else up to this point has been full of lies, full of posturing, a strategic intimacy? 
and the way that they were saying it. And I don't mean the good intimacy. I guess the point I'm making here is you've put yourself into somewhat of a quagmire. You need to extricate yourself from this particular situation because you are taking it on the chin. In order to extricate yourself from this situation, you would need to come up with some sort of deal, some sort of agreement in order to put this to bed, in order to save face, in order for people to go into their respective corners with the understanding, all right, this is settled. You're, the way you've acted for this entirety of this conflict has destroyed that potential possibility. And anything that gets done is probably going to get done on the battlefield as a direct result of the lying and duplicity that has been shown all through this process. You've lost credibility, and I'm unsure how you ever get that back. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Don't be shy. We'll try to get to you at 8.45, or for that matter, 9.45. Xi Jinping is in Saudi Arabia. And I'm just going to read this part. I love this. When Chinese leader Xi Jinping arrived in Riyadh on Wednesday, Saudi Arabia received him with a pomp and circumstance normally reserved for the kingdom's most strategic ally, the United States. Four jet fighters from the Royal um, Saudi Air Force escorted Xi's plane after it entered the country airspace. It was then escorted to land by six aerobatic jets dragging green smoke trails, according to the China State Broadcaster, CCTV. Saudi State TV showed Z walking down the steps of his presidential aircraft at King Khalid International Airport. And I love this part right here. A purple carpet was rolled out for the Chinese leader and cannons were fired. Interesting. I love that. And look, on some level, this gets across the level of closeness between these two countries. And the interesting point is what does it mean? To have a conversation with us, we're joined with Mohammed Goma. He's a journalist, experience in U.S. and Middle Eastern affairs. Mohammed, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? I'm very good. Good. Um, thank you for having me. No, thank you for joining us. Give me your take on why this meeting is of such importance. Like meeting Xi Jinping is meeting with a very close ally of the United States, or at the very least used to be a close ally of the United States. And they're basically rolling out the red carpet for him. Purple, Purple carpet. Thank you. Carpet of royalty. Um, give me your take on why this is so important and why Saudi Arabia is rolling out the red carpet for China in such a way. The, this is the so important uh, meeting with 30 leaders uh, in the Middle East, also uh, with the uh, Crown Prince, uh, MBS, and uh, uh, the Saudi King. This meeting it comes after weeks of the uh, meeting, President Biden with the leaders there in Saudi Arabia also, but some voices describe this uh, meeting with a little bit failed than this one, that the U.S. is lowering the priority of the Middle East, starting from uh, President Biden uh, when he takes the office. And now China, one of the biggest uh, import countries for the, for the oil, and I think it's 
takes uh, the half of their needs from the uh, Gulf area. This meeting is important to make uh, such a good ties with the uh, these countries, the Arab countries now in this time, because China needs the uh, Arab countries, especially in the Saudi Arabia, for economy, for the uh, military equipment, for also for oil. You know, the, there is a lot of ties between the, the both sides, China and the Arab countries. Arab countries also import a lot of uh, stuff from China, and they need China also. We have 30 leaders will meet with President Xi, and they will have, I think, a, a lot of negotiation around the military arm also, and uh, with the technology, the high-tech, plus the uh, infrastructure. we facing also now the um, crisis of Ukraine. So I think China starts to go toward the Arab countries to fill in the gap of the U.S. Uh, they are avoiding to strengthen the ties with this, the, the Arab countries now and the Middle East area. Let me ask you this. Is there a concern from going to the geopolitical aspect of this? Yes, China needs oil. And in fact, at the point where their economy kicks up again, oil prices are probably going to increase as a direct result of the consumption. But from the standpoint of the petrodollar, I mean, the meeting with Xi Jinping and these other world leaders, especially from the standpoint of the Middle East, there is a larger, how can I say this, a looming threat, and tell me if I'm wrong, with this idea that the petrodollar or the hegemony of that petrodollar on some level demands a relationship with Saudi Arabia in order to ensure this thing of, you know, protection for oil and continues. I mean, if the relationship between Saudi Arabia and China gets closer, what does that mean from that standpoint, this control of the dollar itself? Let's, let's also not forget that earlier this year, Mohammed bin Salman um, had negotiated with China to mm-hmm. potentially accept the yuan yes. to buy their oil. Well, they were saying, right, they were considering the petrol yuan as right. opposed to the petrodollar. So get into that force, the, this idea of this kind of, what does this mean in a geopolitical standpoint if Saudi Arabia gets far more ingratiated with China or if China gets far more ingratiated with Saudi Arabia? And what does that mean for the standpoint of the dollar itself? Still here? Did we lose him? Hello, hello? Is there anybody out there? I don't think... Okay. Yeah, there may be a... Technical problem. Thank you. Technical difficulties. Um, we're trying to get him back on. There's something a little weird. Live broadcast. It does happen. It's live. Oh, there good. Excellent. Welcome back. Um, did you hear my question by chance? Yeah, you, you asked me or... Oh, yeah, I did. So I'll, just, I'll, re, I'll rehash. All things being equal, what I'm asking about is what does this mean in a geopolitical standpoint from the standpoint of the dollar? I mean, the petrodollar is one of the things that allows the dollar to basically maintain its hegemony around the world. And if China is getting that much closer to Saudi Arabia, and if the United States is getting that much further away from Saudi Arabia... What does that mean from the hegemony of the dollar in and of itself if the relationship between China and Saudi Arabia get that much more closer, especially with the U.S. Yeah. falling away? I, I, think, I think the U.S. now we keep an eye on this meeting because, you know, the, the meeting now, it's maybe agreed of a lot of agreements between the Saudi Arabia and the China. And this point, at this point, the Crown Prince is meeting with President Xi now, this time. And may, may they accept the one, may they will uh, use the, uh, the, the local uh, currency, like uh, the, the Saudi currency, or 
the Chinese yuan. So this is, I think, maybe affect the, the U.S. dollar. Uh, you know that Saudi Arabia has uh, an agreement all time with the U.S. to import and export the oil with the uh, U.S. dollar. Now we have multipolar, I think, in the world. We used to have only one polar, the U.S., the sole uh, power around the world. Now we have multipolar, and we have Russia, we have China. They have an interest in the Middle East now. I think this is, will affect the U.S. dollar uh, on, on, on maybe a year or two. They will affect the U.S. dollar if they accept or they uh, agree with the, uh, do the, uh, the ties or the, the oil exchange uh, with their uh, currency, the yuan uh, or the uh, Saudi currency. They, I think, uh, in, in, my, in my point of view, I think it will affect uh, in the long time, in the, in the long, uh, long term. Well, especially with them getting closer in BRICS also. I mean, the fact that the BRICS nations, Saudi Arabia is, again, wants to become part of that. I mean, give me your take on that. I mean, basically, it seems Saudi Arabia is moving further away from the West and getting closer to the East. Yes, right. You know, now we're starting to move forward to uh, China, also with uh, Russia. They have a lot of agreements with Russia and China now, especially with the lowering the priority of the U.S. or absent the U.S. in the Middle East. This makes the Saudi Arabia feel like they can depend on other alliances like China, like uh, Russia. They have a great power now. They have oil. They have the high-tech product. So I think this is a big interest now in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia. China now is is having a lot of uh, agreements and um, ties with the Arab countries, the Middle East. China China have good good ties with Egypt, Egypt, Algeria, uh, Morocco. So this is the big countries in the Middle East now. So I think it's it's maybe it 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 will give a hard time to U.S. in this area because. China have a foot now and start to have negotiation around the, uh, the high tech and also the oil. As I mentioned, the China have, I think, um, most of the uh, uh, oil needs from the, uh, the Arab countries. There, in this uh, meeting, there is five Gulf um, states among the, the 10 biggest exporters, the oil exporters around the world. Now, Mohammed, can I ask, is there any significance to this timing? Why right now? Why is President Xi going there now? We know he just secured his third term uh, in office. Does that have anything to do with the timing of this trip? This trip, it comes after weeks of the uh, Biden's trip. You know, um, President Biden, when he go to the uh, Saudi Arabia, he didn't take a lot of uh, what he needs from Saudi Arabia. Now, I think this is very important to President Xi to secure his third uh, term of office and also to have a good relationship with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf area. Uh, China now start to, I think, uh, understand that they, they, um, in the Arab countries and the Africa, they need China like China needs them. And I think they have the intent to strength their interest there in, in, the, uh, in the area for economy reasons. Also, you know, uh, there is partnership with some countries in, in this area, um, as I mentioned, in Algeria and Egypt, uh, Morocco and Saudi Arabia and the other countries of the Gulf area. So this is, I think, it's very important to President Xi 
to have a good ties in the, the, the both sides, the economy and the to export the military equipment for Saudi Arabia. You know that Saudi Arabia also faces a, face a hard time with the legislature here in the U.S. for uh, approve the, uh, the arms sales. Now, speaking of the economic angle, we know that China has been aggressively expanding their Belt and Road Initiative, the New Silk Road, as it's called. Is there any chance that he's looking to expand the New Silk Road all the way to Saudi Arabia, especially when there's no confirmed numbers? The the Chinese government has not released any exact numbers of how many countries have joined, but it's speculated to be in the multiple dozens, like 60 plus countries, they say. Um, this is, the, you know, the New Silk Road will be maritime. It'll be over land. Is there any chance that they'll be discussing the New Silk Road reaching to Saudi Arabia? I think so, because... Uh, President Xi, when he speak with the Crown Prince and the uh, and the, the the U.S. leader, uh, uh, sorry, the um, Saudi leader, I think he he will he will discuss the Silk Road. You know, uh, China is in the Asia, uh, Saudi Arabia is in, in Asia, and also the Silk Road will pass the Saudi Arabia. So I think he will discuss the uh, Silk Road, uh, the belt, because um, they have a. I think the China they have a strategy, a uh, big strategy with Algeria and Egypt, to Tunisia, Morocco, and uh, Libya for strength the ties on the uh, economic scale. And I think the, um, they have now, um, you know, the, the, the mutual economic, economic size is, I think, between 300 or 340 billion U.S. dollar in the last year. So I think he will focus on this during this meeting. Got a question for you. What does it mean for Saudi and, let's say, um, Saudi and China relationship? What does it mean in practice? Meaning from the standpoint of the way the world is looking at this relationship between these two countries, what does it mean? For Saudi Arabia, I think they will need to, I think it's, it's important, uh, Saudi Arabia prove that they have a good ties with Russia. They will have a good ties with China. The Chinese rule now is start to getting bigger uh, than before in the Middle East, and I think they the inter- interest they have an interest for have a big ties with uh, China in this time. Especially as, as I mentioned, that U.S. is start to getting withdrawn from the uh, the area from the um, from the dealing with the uh, the problems in the in the uh, Gulf area in the Middle East also. So I think Saudi Arabia needs to improve their uh, ties with the other countries, with the other big high-tech countries like China and like uh, Russia, to have a big or to be, let us say, depending on other countries than the U.S. on the longer long term. No, that makes sense. I would I would characterize it as under Biden the souring of the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Now, the Biden uh, DOJ is saying that they will not prosecute or pursue any charges um, to Mohammed bin Salman over the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. And do you think that is an effort to try to repair relations or, you know, just just make nice to try to get Mohammed bin Salman back on the U.S. side? I think so, because, you know, the beginning, uh, President Biden, before he take the office, he promised that he will make the Saudi Arabia as a Korea state. And this is, I think, uh, make the Saudis anger of this statement. 
And then he tried to, you know, uh, after he, as, as you mentioned, he's souring the relationship with the Saudi Arabia. And I think he tried to lower this voice and also he tried to get back uh, the crown prince. He know that the crown prince, he will be sooner or later, he will be the king in the, in the Saudi Arabia. The DOJ, the US DOJ, I think they have, like, as, as I hear that they mentioned that MBS, when he get the influence as the premier or the uh, prime, prime minister, minister. Yeah. yeah, the prime minister, it will immune him, uh, him uh, that he there is no any any uh, legal uh, action against him. So I think uh, U.S. trying to get back Saudi Arabia to their alliance. Uh, we see um, Saudi Arabia and their stand in the uh, OPEC plus and some other treaties. Uh, Saudi Arabia also, I think, they have an anger after the uh, Congress halt the arms sale for them. So I think they have uh, some some issues. They are anger from this, and maybe maybe uh, the U.S. administration trying to make the you know the uh, trying to get back the Saudi Arabia to make them happy with the their. Um, Steps, but I think it's it's very hard now. And this in this time, I think also the Saudi Arabia start to understand that they can depend on other alliances with big countries. You know, um, China and Russia now is is now is is, is start to get the power uh, in front of the U.S. Yeah, can I throw in there that while the U.S. Saudi relations are souring? The U.S. seems to be strengthening relations with the United Arab Emirates. How do you see that relationship shaking out? I mean, the UAE is very closely aligned to Saudi. UAE is very close, but they have their interests also. The, uh, yeah, you, you don't forget that the, um, the UAE have some ties with Israel, and they are uh, now uh, in the uh, Abraham um, Agreement. But the Saudi Arabia start not in this uh, agreement. But I think they trying to be like between the the two countries to to uh, make the, to to narrow the gap. But I think it's it's start it's still uh, Saudi Arabia have some some issues and also also the anger from some steps of the U.S. administration on or the Congress uh, decision and. Uh, they will. I think they will uh, cooling the um, uh, the relationship between the two countries. But I think is it's affected now. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't. I don't feel like it would be a wise decision on the part of the UAE to allow the U.S. to perhaps put a wedge between UAE and Saudi Arabia. And then when you add China with their billions and billions of dollars of investment in the UAE. This gets very complicated in, in just such a small area, right? The Seven Emirates is very small. Uh, how do you see all of, you know, this business interplay there with the UAE expanding so much um, economically? Do you, do you foresee the relationship there being able to be handled well? Um, and would they allow the U.S. to put a wedge between uh, UAE-Saudi relations? It's very hard between the two countries to put a wedge between the UAE and Saudi Arabia. It's very hard, but I think it's it's also the it's it's uh, an easy way. Uh, I think the U.S. have the the easy way, but I think it's very hard because they have not only the ties of the Gulf area; they have a lot of ties. They there is a relationship. They have uh, relatives 
between the two countries. This is very hard to have uh, this reach. But, you know, UAA also have uh, good ties with China, good ties with Russia. They will try to be narrow the gap between the, the countries, but they try to are also to, to play a role. Like be a bridge. Yeah, I think. But but it's very hard to build the wedge between the two countries. Also, one time when I asked some of the um, Gulf journalists, uh, I asked him, what do you prefer, uh, to deal with the uh, Republican administration or Democratic administration? He, he, he told me especially, in Gulf area, they like to deal with Republican administration rather than the Democratic administration. Interesting. I want to expand out a little bit from um, China and Saudi Arabia to Europe for a bit. Um, Europe has implemented this price cap idea. Of course, they're trying to get it to $60 a barrel. But all things have been equal. Um, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Russia, China, um, India, none of these countries are basically on board for it. Of course, Russia's not on board for it. But basically, half of the globe is not on board for this. What is this relationship going to mean for Europe? I mean, all things being equal, Europe is going to freeze, um, if not this year, definitely the years after that when their inventory runs low. I um, mean, they don't necessarily have a way to fill their coffers. What is this relationship and the closeness with China and, you know, especially with these two countries being close together and with, let's say, China being somewhat on the outs in Europe? It's weird. I mean, it's quasi on the outs, I suppose. But what is this going to mean for Europe if China and Saudi Arabia are getting this closer together, especially around the issue of energy? I think it's also uh, the in Europe, keep an eye on, on this relationship between the uh, two countries, uh, between China and uh, Saudi Arabia, because they, they have fear of China. I think they fear from the, the development situation of uh, China that the China is getting bigger than, than now. You know, there is a, a competition between U.S., India, China, Russia, and Europe, all of them, because uh, we are facing this time the oil, the problem of oil imports and exports around the world, and also because the competition in the high tech uh, between the China and uh, U.S. You know that in the, in the couple of weeks, last couple of weeks, they start to in some states they are start to clocking the using the TikTok uh, on the state phones. In some states, I think it's now for for states. We return back to the tech talk um, crisis uh, since the, the former President Trump. In Europe, they have the same fear. I think they are sharing the same fear like U.S. Uh, in the U.S., they have some fearing of China and the competition with the, uh, the high tech and also the economy. I think it's um, the U.S. and, and uh, Europe is sharing the same stand toward uh, China. I, I guess what I'm getting at is China is going to use a huge amount of Right now, the price of oil, I forget the exact amount or the cost of it. But all things being equal, this is that cost is in place with China basically shutting down its economy over a zero COVID policy. Well, that policy is being unraveled at this point, or at the very least they're pulling back from it, which means China's economy is going to kick up and running again, which is going to increase the price of oil again. I guess what I'm trying to get at is what does this mean for Europe if the relationship between, let's say, Russia and Saudi Arabia or China and Saudi Arabia, basically brick nations. I mean, if much of the oil is going to China, Russia, et cetera. I'm sorry, going to China, for example. Where is Europe going to get its supply from? I mean, especially if the relationship between Saudi Arabia and China has gotten closer. It seems this makes Europe's situation that much worse. 
Yeah, and I, I think the, um, the they are closer now. China is very close to the, the Arab countries and the Gulf state area because they have a lot of relationship. Uh, they start to, uh, they feel, I think, in the Saudi Arabia and also in the Gulf area and the Arab area, they are dealing with them peer to peer, not I'm have the, I have this superiority, and uh, you do this, don't do this. I think they are starting to watch this. We focus on on the economy, uh, so we have to deal with each other, uh, China and the Arab countries. So I think the closer and closer it, it comes during the time, the, the um, maybe the the next year, the the couple of years coming. But they are getting closer now with the uh, the Arab countries. I'll jump into the future for about five years. What does this relationship look like? As long as the U.S. is avoiding to return back to the Middle East, I think China and Russia and India will take the place in the coming five years. That's very soon. <laughs> that is very soon. Wow. But, by the way, I think it's maybe before the five years. Because China have a big, big deals, big, big, big relationship now with the Arab countries. They are start to invest in the um, uh, in some in some places. They have um, uh, factories there. They have import and export from the Arab countries. They import the oil and they export the high tech, the um, cars, machines, a lot of the stuff there in the Arab countries. If you know, if if you check most of the. Um, the high tech or the uh, you know the um, the machines in the factories, you may find it's made in China now. Most of the countries. Oh wow, wow! It's basically, they have a fiduciary relationship with these guys that is forcing them to get China, closer. China is the world's manufacturing hub. Yes, it is the world. And right here, China is the largest trading partner with yeah. mutual trade worth eighty seven point three billion in twenty twenty one. Chinese exports to Saudi Arabia reportedly reached thirty point three billion. While China imports to the kingdom amounted to $57 billion. Massive amounts of money. Of its crude. Yeah, yeah, massive amounts of money. But look, um, Mohammed, thank you for this. Mohammed Goma, he's a journalist, experienced in the United States and Middle Eastern affairs. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. Comfortably. On the right, your favorite conservative cousin, Malik Abdul, and you are listening to... Fault lines on radio, Sputnik. You know, Omar made the point of saying, is Omar? Is that right? Mohammed, right. Goma, Goma, not Omar. Um, yeah, he makes the point of saying that basically the people are watching this relationship. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. There, there was what, the oil for security agreement. What, back in the 40s, if I'm not mistaken, that took place? And so for this relationship has been lasting for 50, 60, 70 years. And what's interesting, I think it was either CNN or the New York Times makes the point of saying the U.S. is getting tired of the relationship with the autocratic kingdom. It's been 50, 60 years. What are you talking about? They're getting tired of it. 
It's like, no, they didn't like the killing of Shoshoge. Biden came in and went to, um, you know, make the guy pariah and everything talk. else. Yeah. All talk. And now, of course, the because charges. Biden's DOJ yeah. is not even considering. Hands off. Yeah, any any charges. So. Yeah, those relationships are not going to change those Chinese, those um, construction contracts that they have. They're not going anywhere. The things that they're doing around the tech industry, adopting Chinese technology, yeah. none of that stuff, that's only going to increase. Right. Yes. And right. as as the U.S. continues to isolate whoa. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. China and others, uh-oh. Breaking, breaking news. Breaking, breaking, big breaking. breaking news. Brittany Griner released by Russia. In a one-for-one prisoner swap. Well, they said that's what would happen. With Victor Boot. Oh, they did get rid of Victor Boot. But, dude, Victor Boot is at the very end of his, like, sentence. Yeah. He's he's about ready to get out anyway. Yeah. So they're like, the U.S. is like, okay, here, you can have your guy back. Yeah. We've we've had him for 30 years. Right, exactly. He's served so much time already. So she'll, she'll, I wonder, will she be home for Christmas? That's a good point. That's a good point. But if they let her out... I would imagine she's going to make her way be- beeline to the U.S. as soon as possible. This is a question for the good Reverend Jesse Jackson. Yes, it is. Oh, oh I mean, I'm sorry. So they just made the deal for it because Jesse it, was just announced because right, Jesse right, was talking right. about going. I know. Jesse was like, send me, which I was I was hoping that he did not do. It's about I, I love Jesse, but he got some age on him. It's it's hard for Jesse to move around, yeah. and I think this I mean, it's God so unfortunate him. though. Yeah. But he's he, at that age. But yeah. see, to me, it's tough. It's one of those things like. It's who you are. Right. It's a basis of who you are. And that's who he is. And yeah. he's still like, I want to go. I want to go. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, it's, it's almost as if look, it's one thing to take a job. It's another thing to have this kind of life mission mm-hmm. where you've accommodated yourself to saying, this is what I want to do in life. This is my objective in life. I could be 99 years I'm old on my, my deathbed death. yeah. and I am still going. Let me just contrast. Fascinating. Two, okay. Reverend Jackson, who actually does stuff, and he's like, what, around 90 Yeah, he has some age on him. Oh, right? yeah. And he's much older than Reverend, air quotes, Al Sharpton, <laughs> who just blabs on air. He's not on air, is he? He's still yeah, on air? he's still on MSNBC. He just blabs on air, gets people all shook up, and, I mean, what's what's he really So Jesse's done? only 80, 81. Oh, That's oh. it? Yeah, he's only 80. But, you know, he has parking. Oh, okay. That's so why. Okay. That condition. Yeah. But see, he's man enough to own it and say, I have Parkinson's disease versus Biden, who oh. we clearly oh. see is falling apart. Yeah. And I, I'm no gerontologist. I don't, I'm not a geriatric specialist. Right. But I feel like I am having cared for my grandmother who went through Parkinson's and dementia and all of that. And I was there for her deathbed from you know, when, when she began this <laughs> this sad decline. Yeah. And I see all the hallmarks of it with President Biden. And you know what? Jesse Jackson is brave enough to say it. Yeah. Biden, I, but I don't know. But many people around, people, we want Jesse to, we want Jesse to sit down. But when Jesse fell at Howard back in 2020, oh. remember he fell at Howard University, it was like, Ooh. Yeah, you can imagine everybody winced. At the and because yeah. of all the traveling that he was doing, I'm sure that's how he he's ended pushing, up contracting, yeah, he's pushing. contracting COVID. Yeah. Um, I, know, look, I agree with you. I guess. I love, I love the, the fight yeah. that he has in him, but I'm more so concerned. And I'm sure he's like his health, life, yeah, and that I'm type sure stuff. Fam- yeah. Well, not I'm sure. His family also has these concerns. Yeah, of course, the they love him. him. Yeah. But you can't but he's tell a fighter. him. But you how can't tell you, him. Can't, you tell, can't tell him not to do it? At the point where somebody has accommodated, my life is this. Right. My life. It's hard blood. to shake him out of that. Right. So that that before we get to the other headlines, mm-hmm. JT, 
We'll repeat that news again. Brittany Griner released by Russia in a one-to-one, one-for-one prisoner swap with infamous Russian arms dealer, Victor Boot. Victor Boot. So they on the way for the swap. Good. I'm glad that she is coming out. It kills me that somebody will be put in prison, whether it's in the States or anywhere else, or pot. Glad she's coming home. All right, let's do this. Let's get into the news. In the news, Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez is under investigation by the House Ethics Committee, the Congress congressional body announced on Wednesday. A statement released by acting chairwoman Susan Wild, Democrat from Pennsylvania, and acting ranking member Michael Guest, Republican, I think this is Mississippi, announced an extension of the inquiry, but did not provide any details on what the investigation is related to. Quote, the acting chairwoman and acting ranking member of the Committee on Ethics have jointly decided to extend the matter regarding Representative Ocasio-Cortez. Unquote. The statement reads, it also notes that the complaint was assigned to the committee by the Office of Congressional Ethics on June 23rd, 2022. So basically earlier in the year but they're not necessarily giving details on why. Interesting. Let's keep going. The New York Times member of the News Guilds are planning to walk out for a one-day strike on Thursday after union representatives and management were unable to reach a deal acceptable to both sides. Last week, 1,100 New York Times Guild members signed a letter stating they would walk out if their demands were not met or reasonable compromise cannot be reached just after 7 p.m. Eastern Standard. The Guild released a statement confirming their walkout. Quote, The New York Times Guild has announced their official decision to walk out tomorrow, Thursday, December 8th, due to the company's failure to bargain in good faith, reach a fair contract agreement with their workers, and meet their demands. The Times Guild Bargaining Committee offered to stay at the table for as long as it took to reach a deal and avert the walkout, but management walked away from the table a little bit before 7 p.m. and refused to return with five hours to go. Unquote. Um, There's a follow-up story that the Biden administration is basically stopping the New York Times from walking out and they will prevent them from being able to go with this one-day strike. I am joking on this, making a point about the rail workers. Let's keep going. Hours after declaring rule by decree law and and attempting to abolish the national legislature, Peruvian President Pedro Castillo was taken into custody by police as his base of support evaporated. Wow. Peruvian police said in a statement on Wednesday afternoon that, quote, in pursuance of our duties prescribed in the law of the National Police in Peru, the office detained ex-president of Peru, Pedro Castillo, unquote. Castillo. 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 Thank you. Okay, that L's a silent. Double L. Double L's is the yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yo. Okay. The announcement came after Castillo declared, quote, an exceptional emergency government, unquote, on Wednesday morning and attempted to dissolve the Congress in order to block planned vote on his removal from office, which Peruvian politics is called vacating. Is it really called vacating when the cops come and get you? That's like when... <laughs> I love the term. Man, I love the way they name this stuff. Leave no child behind and you're basically... Vacating the go. office. Yeah, it's not no. really vacating. They dragged you up out of there. Yeah, they dragged you out there, <laughs> kicking and screaming. This is like um, in Honduras, I believe, when Hillary Clinton was like, yeah, there was no coup in Honduras. They just dragged the guy out of his pajamas. And it's like... Was, what what president gets dragged out in his PJs and is that a coup? It's like because normally presidents leave in their pajamas. Then they put in a drug kingpin, what Hernando's Hernandez, um, whatever the his, his name is. Um, they were trying to prosecute that guy for basically being a drug kingpin. It was astonishing. They put the guy in charge. Don't, don't a, judge about pajamas, guys. Yeah. COVID, <laughs> COVID changed all of that. Okay, it did. But if you walked getting, around in pajamas. Well, that's fine. But if you're the president, you're getting dragged away from your office, and Hillary Clinton writes in a book, "This wasn't a coup." 
a little problem. It, it's 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 not a raid. The FBI just showed up. They just showed up. They're just walking through the house. That's all. They just self-invited. Yeah. It's like, why Fine. is Trump getting bothered by this? They were just roaming the house. They can roam in anybody's house. Why should you get upset if you're not? I mean, come on. Are you sir? Vacated. Okay. We can call it that. Vacated. In quotes. NATO was aware of the preparations for the latest attacks by Ukraine on Russian military airfields and Sartov, Sartov and Ryzen regions. Konstantin Gorillov, the head of the Russian delegation at the military security and arms control talks in Vienna, said on Thursday, quote, NATO was aware of the preparations for the latest Ukrainian attacks on the Russian military airfields. We gave them an immediate response with a massive strike on the military command and control systems, defense complex facilities and related energy facilities in Ukraine. No one should have any doubts that this will happen every time if acts of Ukrainian terrorism continue, unquote. Gorilov said at a plenary a meeting at the OSCE, Forum for Security Cooperation. You know, and this is, if you remember, it was immediately leaked that the Biden administration was like, hey, we modified those HIMARS so they can't release these long-range missiles. This was almost immediate. And so the catch was like, we didn't have anything to do with that attack. Well, Russia's saying something different. They're like, well, they did, know. Let's keep going. The process of joining NATO by Finland and Sweden was the fastest accession process in the bloc in the entire modern history. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg said on Wednesday, quote, so far, this has been the quickest ascension process or session process in NATO's modern history. We have to remember that Finland and Sweden applied for membership in May. And then in June, all NATO allies, also Turkey, invited Finland and Sweden to become members, unquote. Stoltenberg said in an interview during FT Live. He added that Hungary had promised to ratify the session protocols earlier this year. Let's not be so quick with Turkey. <laughs> let's, let's reserve judgment for Turkey to see if that basically turns out the way he's saying it is. Um, let's keep going. The UN General Assembly on Wednesday adopted a resolution submitted by Russia on no first placement of weapons in outer space. The resolution was adopted after 122 countries voted in favor of the Russian initiative, with 50 voting against and four abstaining from the vote. The resolution dubbed No First Placement of Weapons in Outer Space urges all states, and particularly those with, quote, space capabilities, unquote, to consider the possibility of, quote, upholding as appropriate a political commitment to not be the first to place weapons in outer space, unquote. This is great. The last thing you want is a weapon flying over your head that at any moment death can be delivered from the sky. Um, so, yeah, good. Very good. In 1941, this is a day in history, in 1941, U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt delivered a day which will live in infamy, that speech to Congress, a day after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and a day after Manila was born. In 1965, Pope Paul, um, I think this is six, signed Second Vatican Council. In 1966, the United States and the USSR signed treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons in outer space. In 2004, Cusco delegation is signing Cusco, Peru, establishing the Union of South American Nations. And those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Thought Lines with Thomas, Chan, Abdul. Interesting stuff. Why didn't you want him to say the um, other one? The when he went over the missile treaty that what was it? All right. So in 1966, U.S. and USSR signed a treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons in outer space. Oh no, that was her birthday. She, oh, so she okay. Didn't, she didn't want like, to mention birthday talk. Yeah, she she didn't she didn't mention the because it was what the headline was is that it's the the what is day it, after the, the day that you were the first, the first day, day of Manila's life or something like. Oh, that. I see. Yeah, I see. Okay. Every, see, yes, I don't. Manila is so much. She doesn't want it. No big. Don't make a big deal. Don't make a. Well, big here's deal. the thing. So. 
So yes, while I was born and raised in Los Angeles, uh-huh. and obviously it's it's in America, or the, although some would argue it's different than America, but <laughs> <laughs> but I was raised dual culture, right? Like in in, in Asian culture, maybe because it's a very collectivist culture that it's not about you, it's right? Like like your birthday. Because you're, you know, it's a very Western, very specifically, very, very American, right? To be like, it's my birthday. And yeah. and we've gone to the point where we're like, it's my birthday month. Rugged individualism. People are like, yeah, yeah. it's very like me, 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 me. And that's just not the culture at home that I was I, raised I heard that, in. Like even in interviews, like if you were in an Asian country, you were showboating, like I did this and I, I did this like and I don't. That. Yeah, they, don't, culture, they frown upon a, it. It's a cultural thing. It's a collective culture. It's a, it's a we, how do we better the group? How do we, like, how does, you know. Uh, over elaborating on my birthday. It's like, it's not much of my, my own achievement. Okay, so I've managed to live 40 some odd years. Yeah. Great. But if if there was an achievement to be recognized, it'd be on the part of my mom, like I said. You broke little, out the womb. Little like 90 something pound, 90 pound lady. And you fertilized the egg. I didn't do that. You fertilized the egg. That was you. I didn't do any of that. That was you. So I managed to survive the womb. You're like, able to okay. kick so, away the other sperm cells. Especially with e- East Asian culture, we celebrate like achievement and mm-hmm. accomplishment. It is, it, it's a cultural thing. So for birthdays in Western culture, Western culture makes that like such a special thing. And, and right. yes, in, in many ways, I agree with celebrating like, okay, you've, you've made it another trip around the sun. <laughs> you've survived because this world is tough. The world is tough, man. But, yeah. And I get that. And, and I do. But... But, you know, it's a very Western thing. Asian cultures, it's more of like you celebrate achievements, uh-huh. accomplishments. Like, then you can turn around and be like, let's have a big dinner. I got a big raise at work, honey. Or, yeah. you know, stuff like that. Or, or a kiddo got into Harvard or Oxford or whatever. Yeah. Then you're like, okay, let's celebrate. Birthdays are like, okay, happy birthday. Uh, are you a doctor yet? <laughs> well, hey, our producers are telling us, talking about the breaking news, our producers are telling us that Biden will give a speech. Willie. So he's going to take, I did this. My name is Joe Biden. I got her back. I delivered. I'm sure Dennis Rodman I delivered. Did it. I had all sorts of <laughs> diplomacy behind the scenes. It's going to be that. Yeah, when Blinken was over here saying, no, no, we're not going to trade. No. Yeah. No. And by the way, Russians have been trying to make trades for a while. The U.S. has been like, yeah, we don't want to do that. We're not interested in that. And then when Griner gets locked up, hey, we have a black female basketball player who's a lesbian. Black, right, yeah. black gay she, female. Right. She like, hits all of our woke boxes. We, we need right, to get her back immediately. We need to get her. She's <laughs> right. a gem. Right. For our culture, we need to get her. She can shoot a basketball. She's radically important. Right. Very, very important. And look, I, I'm, I'm joking on this on some level, but I hate the fact. I, look, I don't want anybody locked up for pot, right. whether they are I in agree. the U.S., meaning if I get caught in the airport, they're taking me to jail. Right. But at the same time, you got to respect other countries' laws. laws yes. It's not, you're not at home. You're, you're not, not at home. in America. Like, you're not just, at home. So that guy, not. who was the kid who got beaten? In, I think it was in Singapore. He did oh, right. That young kid. I forget. Yeah, and he yeah. got Many um, years back. Yeah, it was a few years back. And he gets hit with the, um, the whip. Like, he gets caned. Caned. And yeah. people were like, dude, you shouldn't have been messing around in those other people's country. They'll whoop I mean, you. Yeah, they whoop you. And it's like your country may complain. They may shake their fists, but at the end of the day, you're in somebody else's country. Right, you still broke their—you're a guest in their country. Yes. It ain't your house. It's not your house. And then, you know, like the the drunk idiot that uh, got himself in trouble in North Korea that was there for, like, some kind of tour. He, he, like, stole a painting or poster or something. (laughs) Like, bro. I remember that. I do remember that. Right? They see you stealing posters. Like, what—like, I get it. He had, like, no intention of— doing anything bad, or I mean bad, air quotes. But, but you're in another country. 
but you're stealing government property yeah. as like a souvenir. And you got to be very careful. I mean, Come like on, even dude. in some of those countries, you can make a mistake That's, and still get in trouble. Don't, um, and he, I think that kid ultimately ended up dying from. I thought he died. He got he put in prison, right? Something. Yeah. Yeah. I think he, he got he put was in prison. Prison for a while, and then I, I don't know if he came down with some health issues or something, but they they were able to get him back to America. Right, but I thought Koreans, he died once he got back. When he died, once he got back. Yeah. I don't remember from what, but it was like this whole, you know, the thing that precipitated it was that he was he was lifting art. I gotta be honest. I don't know why you went to North Korea in the first right. place. I mean, I'm not blaming the person, no, no, right? I'm no, just honestly, saying. But, um, but, but look, let's do this. Let's take a break. We gotta, we we're gonna take bring calls. our guest. No, our guest is coming in at 8.30. Oh! So in the meantime, why don't we take the break, get your phones ready. You can give us a call, 202-521-1320. We'll be taking calls up until 8.30. 202-521-1320. You are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan Abdul. We'll be right back. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we are taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. And the Rumble Room, real quickly, reminded me that Otto Warmbier was the kid's name in North Korea. Yes. Okay. And he was beaten, and that's why yes. he had, like, ah, he that's was what mentally... It was. Mm-hmm. Unconscious. He was damaged. And, yeah. yeah, he was damaged and he never recovered and he died here. Yeah. Okay, that's what it was. Uh, so now we got calls. All right, we got Tarif, Tarif down in NOLA. What's going on, man? Uh, how y'all doing? Thank y'all for taking my call. First, I'd like to say free joint on signs. And um, I have two comments. First, I want to clarify something from last week I was talking about. Um, uh, what's his name? Um, Kenya Mustard probably. Uh, Chip, I was just saying that, you know, I don't, you know, um, Sometimes I like to, you know, say things like in a conspiracy way to get people to thinking, but I wasn't saying for sure he's chipped, like he got a chip in his hand or anything. I want people to, I don't want people to think that I'm off or crazy or anything like that. But I was thinking about that. So man, let me clarify that. You, oh, you talking about when you said Kanye it, it, West I, had a chip in his head? Oh, it sure did. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so you don't yeah, believe but, that? Yeah. Well, well, you don't know what's going on. The things you need. Wait, wait, Tariq, hold on, hold on, hold on. Do you believe he has a chip in his head or not? I'm trying to nail that and down. And who, who would have implanted the chip? Yeah, who did it? I have no idea, but what I'm saying is this. is the people that, like, Brave brought up some good parts that how he got in contact with these people. You know what I'm saying? The first one, like, like Nick Fortes, how, 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 how they got in contact with him in the first place. Alex but Jones. I think he's being used. Yeah, well, yeah. I think he's being used, and he's not really seeing... What, um, I, I know something's going on when he's, he's spiraling out of control. But I'm going to go ahead on to my second comment. Well, hold on, hold on, Tarif. You know, you know, JT has the rule of, you know, the simplest answer is usually <laughs> the <laughs> right. answer. It could just be that, that Kanye West, who has a known bipolar disorder, could be that. It's being bipolar. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, it could be it's bipolar. But I don't know to be spiraling out of spiraling out of control like that. I don't know. Something's going on. Do people ever spiral out of control without a chip being put into their heads? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's another way. I mean, like um, Paul Robinson, what I found out, like Max, what, uh, Max Alvarez used to come on the show, he did some research and um, he found out that uh, Paul Robinson, he was thrown in a mental institution for two years, man. They done some, the British government done something to his head. When he came out, he was never the same because he was supposed to lead the civil rights 
movement. Oh, you're saying Paul Robeson. You mean Robeson? Paul Robeson. Okay. Paul Robeson, he had some strange things happen to him. Okay, but, but anyway, let me go on to my second comment. It, I was reading, like, uh, Elon Musk tweets and things like that, and everybody dealing with that um, that Jim Baker thing. I was thinking, I'd say, if they find my name inside those files, that would be good. That would be a connection to me being a whistleblower saying, hey, I'll look, look. To get publicity for your, yeah, publicity for your story. I say, look, I'm a whistleblower, and look, they got me, they got me on a thing. But I don't, I don't think they're probably going to find my name there. I think Jim Baker probably erased my name, the emails with my name and other people's names. I could have tied the government, on, you know, to me and everybody else. I mean, could you know, be. With, you know, whistleblowing. Because, um, I mean, because cause Elon Musk came out and said something that he thinks some emails, some, some, some of the things was deleted. Yes, well, you know were. what, Tarif? I we're going to definitely be on the lookout for it. Who knows? There if are the lots files of, get released, we'll look for your name. things that That's he right. continues to release. So, hey, keep us updated. I'm sure we'll be looking for your name, and you definitely will be looking for your own. But thank you so much for calling. I think we have another yeah, caller, Pete, Pete in, in Florida. Florida. How's it going, Pete? Hey, going good, man. You guys are perfect as always. Hey, got, got some, I got a question for you and an observation. One is, have you guys heard anything more about what happened in Germany? Did they have a January 6th thing? I don't oh. know. Oh, I, did you I do, know, I do know a little bit more about that story than than um, was in our headlines yesterday. Yeah. So I would say it's more of a reflection of, you know, the, the Schultz government um, basically mirroring what's happening here in the U.S. So that group... There's still very scant information because the German um, laws are obviously different yeah. than the U.S. and how much the media can know about uh, prosecutions, very different. Um, so what what is being told right now so far is, in my opinion, it's more as this is based on the information that's out there. In my, infor- in my uh, analysis of what is out there, I view it as this, uh, they call it the Reich, Reich something, I forget the name of the group, but I'm going to call it the Reich Brothers. <laughs> but they basically are in trouble for like a thought crime because they weren't exactly planning. Like they, the, the government in Germany is, is saying that they were planning a violent overthrow of the government, but it's like 25 dudes. I don't know how a 25, a 25 dude coalition is going to overthrow the entire German government. And so these guys are, some of them are ex-military. I think there was one guy that was a a Russian national, another guy that was like, uh, I don't know, from the Netherlands or something. But for all intents and purposes, it's 25 Germans, right? And they've been arrested for basically, you know, hating the Schultz government and believing that there's a deep state. And there are no reports that this group, you know, they're not like the Proud Boys, right, that have gone around and protested or, you know, made themselves known. So this was like a a whole new, like, surprise to the German people because they'd never heard of these people before. And suddenly, randomly, there's a big bust on, you know, two dozen or so guys um, that have actually not done anything. They didn't break a window. They didn't, you know, break into a government building. They hadn't done any of those things. But then again, I'm no German law expert. All I can say is that is so far what's being reported. And so my assessment would be they're in trouble for being a group that hates Olaf Scholz. Yeah, it sounds like January 6th. I bet you there's uh, German intelligent people cooking this thing up so they can get more censorship and more laws. Because the Olaf Scholz, 
I mean, I can't see how anybody in Germany is thinking he's doing a good job destroying their country. I don't think they do. Uh, on a second thought, though. I don't think on they do. second thought. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, exactly. But, hey, true. You notice Time Magazine, you know, got their shot in fame? Now, I'm telling you how old I, I am. <laughs> it used to be Time Magazine and Newsweek were the premier newspapers. If you were a journalist for them, you were the boss. I mean, it was better than the New York Times, if you can imagine that. But now, since all this censorship comes through, you know who's going to be the next Time magazine? CNN, Washington Post. They're doing all this Twitter censorship, and they're looking like fools, and nobody's trusting them. It's like you guys. They're terrified of the news that you bring to the people because they're BS artists. They're working for the oligarchs. There's the that. Wild, yeah, there's that. And the wild part is, it's not like we're even a huge, huge, hawking CNN, you know, they're, they get, look, they have written hit pieces about the show left and right, even going back to the time of Garland and Lee. And it's like, dude, we're a small network. What are you, you know, what are you doing? Like, I mean, they're that terrified where they're hitting down, punching down. Right, you know? It's a small operation, yeah. too. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing, the, the other, the, you the, make them look like fools. Yeah, the other day, um, it was a friend of mine. He just happened to just, I was, he's like, oh, because, you know, he listened to the show. And he said, okay, well, I'm going to listen to some of the other shows. And so we were talking yesterday, and he said, are there other conservatives on the show? I mean, on the network? And I said, sure. He said, who are they? And so I had to, you know, think about it for Lee. a minute. Right but, but he said, oh, he said, I thought that was like some right wing. So I was like, uh, bruh. I said, it's probably more like moderate liberals than conservatives yeah. on the network. But he thought that this was just people, that everybody was just right-wing here. And I was like, Nowhere uh, near it. Bruh, I'm not at all. Far <laughs> on the left on that stuff. I mean, you know, you, uh, when you talk yeah. about like... No, um, appreciate, appreciate that, uh, I would say, friendly observation. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Uh, we got we to gotta go take our, our break before we bring in our guests because we're going to be talking about something pretty uh, controversial and... Uh, as much as people try to fight and say, you know, slippery slopes don't happen in the government. Yes, they do. Look at the Patriot Act. Very, very slippery slope. And something is happening to our northern neighbors in Canada. Our next guest is going to join us to talk about the controversial, what's being called euthanasia bill that's up for a vote very soon. So you don't want to miss that talk. Uh, nobody, no one else here is talking about it. Uh, you are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan Abdul will be back with our Canadian guest in just a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan along with Jamal Thomas and Malik Abdul. So we're going to be talking about this controversial bill uh, up in Canada. Uh, but l let me give you a little bit of context as to what this is. So back in 2016, um, they put out, they approved this thing called MAID, M-A-I-D, which stands for Medical, Assisted, uh, Medical Assistance in Dying. In Canada. So they were not the first country to embrace that. Belgium, the Netherlands were the first to legalize it in 2002. Luxembourg, Colombia followed Canada. Uh, and then 2021 saw Spain and New Zealand be become countries that did so, uh, as well as uh, 10 U.S. states plus Washington, D.C. that will allow physician-assisted suicide. But now Canada is talking about euthanasia, which is direct death 
being administered by the physician, okay? So you don't have to take this pill or whatever it is. The physician will effectively put you to death. I mean, there's no other way to, you know, put this lightly. Um, So for that, to learn more about what's going on in Canada, we will go to Alex Schadenberg. And Alex, please correct me in pronouncing your name. He is the executive director of Euthanasia Prevention Coalition in Canada. Alex, thank you so much. Your first time joining us here. Please tell us how to pronounce your last name. Okay, my name is Schadenberg, but that's fine. There's different pronunciations. If you're in Germany, you'd pronounce it differently, but that's fine because uh, my, my father was German. But uh, just to, I, I don't like correcting people, but we legalized euthanasia in 2016. And so what they're now talking about is the, is the further expansions of the law. Mm. So, you know, it's actually much worse than people think because um, we originally legalized it saying that it would only be for people who were, well, they said it would be for people who would be terminally ill, but they didn't really define that well. They said that your natural death had to be reasonably foreseeable. So you already had a lot of slippery slope going on from the beginning because they never defined the term natural death being reasonably foreseeable. And a lot of people, you know, claim that their natural death was reasonably foreseeable. So you already had that slippery slope. And then uh, and then they passed Bill C-7, which extended it to anybody with a chronic condition. So that means all these people with disabilities now qualify for death by lethal injection. And it is lethal injection. That's how they do it. People can call it what they want. They like to call it medical aid in dying or medical assistance in dying in order to make them feel good about it. But in fact, what it is, is it's giving the doctor or nurses the right in law to give you a lethal injection. And so what's happened is, they said, is the disability community was uh, aghast when they were talking about expanding it to people's chronic conditions. Because as they would say then, and they were correct, that, uh, well, you know, most people with disabilities, what makes them a person with a disability is they have a chronic condition which is irremediable, meaning they're not getting better. This is just how they are. This is how they live, Right. You have, you know, if you're uh, someone with, you know, a, a disability who, let's say you you, you're, uh, you hurt your back really bad, so now you're in a wheelchair, you're not going to be out of that wheelchair. You just, you just live. That's how you are, right? So therefore, now, because of the definitions of the law, they qualify for euthanasia. So now we're having all these stories come out about euthanasia for poverty, euthanasia because of homelessness, euthanasia because someone can't get medical treatment. And which has become a very big phenomenon in Canada with the, uh, you know, post-COVID, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, back surgeries got backed up, a lot of, quite a few doctors retired during COVID. So you've got this whole situation of uh, people not being able to get treatment. So therefore, you can't get treatment, but you can be approved for death. And the, the uh, pro-euthanasia people are saying, well, wait a second, the law doesn't say you can have euthanasia for poverty. No, it says you can have euthanasia for an irremediable chronic condition which is what they're being approved for, but they're actually asking for it because they're in poverty. And you may say, why are they in poverty? Because, of course, uh, someone on disability often is not capable of, of, of working because of their disability, they just can't work. Therefore, they're on government assistance, and the rates of government assistance are so low that they're living in poverty. They're literally living, living in poverty. Alex, tell us about the case of Amir Farsoud as an example, because you, you highlight his case on your website. Yeah, Amir Farsoud was a case that, uh, so he's a man who uh, lives in the Niagara region around Niagara Falls, St. Catharines area. And uh, he was living in a, in a subsidized housing unit. So how, how it works in, in, in Ontario is that there's rent control. So if you live in a place for a long time, your rent stays at a reasonable rate. But his, his uh, landlord had sold buildings, so therefore he was told he had to leave. 
He was not capable of finding a place he could afford because of his disability. He was on he was on the disability benefit, and it was not possible. So what happened post COVID is a lot of the rents went through the roof. They they went way up in, in cost, and so therefore, um, you know, to rent a new place, he'd have to pay the rents that were available to him. Couldn't find a place, so he was a proof for made, and he was saying, "I'd rather die by euthanasia than be homeless." So some uh, good people put together a, you know, a GoFundMe, and they raised about $60,000, and so now he has a place to live, and he's happy to live. So here you have another case of someone who had no interest in dying whatsoever. He had no interest in dying, but what it was is he said, I, I don't want to live on the streets, and I can't find a place to live. I, can't, I literally cannot afford to find a place to live. It's not possible. Uh, you might say, don't you have subsidized housing in Canada? Well, of course we do, but there's long waiting lists, very long waiting lists. So if you're in a place that's subsidized already or a lower rent already, and now you have to find a new place, well, you have to go on that waiting list. And he's like, I, I can't afford to live. I simply can't afford to live. I got a, um, an email just two days ago from one of my supporters, and he's in the business. They install uh, you know, uh, elevators and wheelchair ramps and things like that in houses. And he uh, sent me an email saying that um, that there was a guy who had uh, been approved for medical aid and dying. He'd been approved for euthanasia. And the reason was is that his, he couldn't find another place to live, and his house was not accessible to him. So he was you know, having a lot of struggles just getting around his house. And so um, he was going to die by euthanasia because he says, I can't get around. I can't live this way. And a woman whose husband had recently died who had installed uh, a wheelchair ramp in their home uh, said, I will have this disassembled and put in his home and I'll pay the cost. And now he's happy to live. So these are the kind of things that you see with euthanasia. It's not that they, you would think the normal reasons for dying by euthanasia, because that's not what's happening. What's happening is people are saying, well, I qualify because I have a disability. How the law is defined means I qualify and I can't live the way I'm living. People lose hope, eh? They lose, they have a feeling that, you know, I can't live this way any longer. Um, you know, we had uh, a case, there's a case of a woman right now in Windsor, so there's a GoFundMe page for her, and she literally is living in poverty. She has a daughter in university. She has a significant disability. She didn't choose to be disabled. She acquired this disability in her lifetime, and she says, I, I have like $58 on a month to live on, and I, I have my daughter living with me. I can't live this way any longer. I can't continue. And her daughter was saying, well, can you not just live another couple of years for me to at least get out of university? And this is the kind of discussion going on. But there was a GoFundMe page for her, and hopefully that will allow her to continue going. But people have already died by poverty, you know? Yeah, this and is that, and that extreme. Is yeah, Alex, I was reading about, I'm sure you're probably familiar with Jennifer Hatch. Jennifer Hatch. Yeah. Yeah, Jennifer Hatch. So, yeah, so for our audience, Jennifer Hatch had a chronic illness. And apparently she gave an interview during the summer, um, a CTV interview in the summer, where she talks about being able to, about falling through the cracks and feeling as if she isn't able to access health care, but she is able to access death care. And then she says, that's what led me to look into medical assistance in dying. And she applied last year. So she talks about not being able to, you know, go ahead, Anna. Yeah, and the recent story that was in uh, the National Post where they interview her friends, they said, well, you know, she couldn't get health care for her condition because what had happened is a couple of years, several years ago, the doctor in British Columbia who specialized in that area of her condition 
had uh, left British Columbia and no, no new doctor specializing in that area has come to BC. So she said, I could get treatment in, in the U.S., but I can't get treatment at home. And so even in the end, she, she did not want medical aid in dying, but she was resigned to it by the fact that even in palliative care, they had no access to her. They said there's no openings for her. And so, you know, here she's now, now approaching death and they're saying there's no access to her in palliative care either, which to me is, is insane. So uh, in the end, they produce this video about how life is beautiful and she's going to be dying by euthanasia. And isn't this beautiful? Well, they don't tell the full story that she actually is a death by despair. She's, she's in despair of her condition and she can't get treatment for her condition. Therefore, she's dying by lethal injection. So this is the reality. You legalize euthanasia. And I keep telling people, it's like this. Once you say it's okay to do this for certain reasons, there's always a door on the other side. Now, when you introduced, you talked about the, uh, the debate going on. Now Canada has a parliamentary committee that's looking at a few new issues, and one of them is child euthanasia. So the uh, reason is, is, well, the law says that you can only have euthanasia at the age of 18. 18. So a mature, a mature adult, right, is how it would, that would be defined. And while there's a big argument, well, isn't that discrimination against uh, children who are also, quote, quote, suffering? And, you know, I understand that, you know, in the same case, I understand that children could be suffering just like adults could be suffering. So if it's okay to kill an 18-year-old, I guess the argument is pretty um, pretty straightforward. Well, then why isn't it okay to kill a 17-year-old? Uh, the problem is that we're killing in the first place. But nonetheless, it always opens another door because then the Quebec physicians who were, who were presenting to the parliamentary committee, the Quebec physicians group said, well, then we should also have euthanasia of newborns, so infanticide. And they said, you know, this would be a good thing because uh, children are born, some children are born with, uh, with disabilities. And isn't it wrong to force those children to live a life with a disability? So they said, it's, they, you know, really, if you're going to have euthanasia of children, then we should have euthanasia of newborns. But, you know, that opens up a whole other question. Newborns could never ask for it. Newborns can never consent to it. And why are we making that decision then? We're making that decision because there's a, a thought that that life is not worth living. Therefore, we're going to end the life. Well, that's eugenic. That gets problematic. I mean, this is, I got to be honest, I am, look, you're probably going to disagree with me on this, but in cases of terminal illnesses where the person is, there's no chance of hope or anything else, I have no issue with the euthanasia thing. Look, I, I know somebody that chose to end his life yes. because he had terminal cancer. He fought it several, right. several years through, you know, chemo and all the other available treatments applicable to his illness. Yeah. And... Um, is looking at a miserable, miserable right. life. That, yeah, he just, couldn't do it that's anymore. Far that's far different than mentally ill, mentally right. or kids. being able to. Uh, you can't afford it. So yes. the option that you chose, you can't afford your health care. Right. So you chose death. Because look, you can, I can, you can foresee a situation where a person I can see is where it's in merciful, a donut hole. Merciful, where where you choose to end your life. Well, um, when guess, you're sane, yeah. when you're when you're an adult, yeah. And you made that decision and your family has come to terms with it. And, and it's not, and he was in California. So um, it's not super permissive in yeah. that a doctor will just say, oh, you want to die? Yeah, okay, here's, here's yeah. a pill. We don't do that here. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, it took some time for, you know, to apply for that and they approved it. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, but again, he was terminally ill with cancer and he tried all the means to but this is get different. healthy. I mean, these this guys are talking about case. mental health conditions. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Alex. So I understand your point of view, but you see, right off the bat, we have a problem because now society is saying it's okay for a doctor or in Canada, nurses also, 
to be involved with causing the death of somebody. So you've changed the whole concept now of the power of a physician or in Canada also the nurse to be involved with now causing death. Now in this in assisted suicide it is a little different than euthanasia because they give you the prescription or they give you the lethal drugs and you have to take it yourself. Whereas in Canada it's done by lethal injection. So, you know, just to you know, as you obviously introduced it correctly uh in, in this program, um before we legalized euthanasia in Canada, this was homicide. When we legalized euthanasia, we did so by creating an exception in our criminal code to homicide. So if you want to look at our Euthanasia Act, you'd go to Canada's Criminal Code to its Homicide Act, and you notice that there's an exception to homicide. So that's a serious issue when you have an exception to homicide. Now, assisted suicide is equally similar because the fact of it is they're using the same drugs. The difference is who ends up doing the act in the end. Uh, the doctor's totally complicit because, of course, they're they're giving the lethal drugs or writing the prescription for the lethal drugs, knowing that you're going to take it to end your life. And it's a specific drug concoction in order to end your life. Uh, nonetheless, uh, euthanasia means the doctor is actually doing it. But here's the problem. If you say it's okay for that, now we have the next question, and this is what happened in Canada. Originally, they said it was only going to be for terminally ill people. But then there was the big question, well, isn't it discrimination for those people who aren't dying but are also going through a difficult health condition not to have access to it? And this was the big debate then. So now you say it's okay for people who are dying, but as I said, in the beginning, it wasn't really defined well, so you already had a slippage going on, which created the further debate, which meaning we said your natural death had to be reasonably foreseeable. And you can understand if you don't define that term, at least in California, it says you have to be, have six months from death. Uh, you, you have to be diagnosed as having at least six months to live, and that's it, uh, or less than six months. So at least it's defined, right? But in Canada, it wasn't defined. So, But nonetheless, and they said, well, that's discrimination. And uh, there was actually two people with disabilities who went to the court and said, you know, we're not, our natural deaths are not reasonably foreseeable, and yet we should have equal access to this. And the court agreed. You're right. You should have equal access to that. If it's okay to do it for someone who's terminally ill, why is it not okay to do it for someone who's chronically ill uh, but having difficult health conditions? And so this is how the thing sort of rolls. In the same way as the child euthanasia issue comes up, and it makes total sense. If it's okay to kill an 18-year-old, well, why isn't it okay for a 17-year-old? It's discrimination, and that's correct. It's discrimination. And an excellent article was written by Wesley Smith. Wesley Smith wrote an excellent article about this saying, well, worldwide, what happened? Well, he talked about the Netherlands law, the Belgium law, the Kenyan law. He said all the original safeguards get torn out because of discrimination. And he was right. That's exactly what happens. Uh, one person says, but that, you know, that's not right. So in Belgium, they already have child euthanasia. And the reason they expanded it was for the same reason as I'm saying. The law originally said 18, and they said, well, that's, uh, that's not right, because what about this 15-year-old or the 17-year-old? And that's exactly how it goes. I mean, the difference is agency. It's like, well, for example, if somebody is getting a trans surgery, for example, and the person is 18 years old. Um, the I mean, gender-affirming gender right. surgery. We often go with this idea that at a certain age, the person has a right to drink, vote, etc. Right. Meaning we allow age to be determined the fact of whether or not the person is an well, adult. Well, that's why the laws are there, right? To protect minor children Correct. because their brains aren't fully developed to make these adult decisions exactly. that can impact the rest of their lives. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any laws against, you know, a 40-year-old man marrying a 12-year-old child. Right. Right. With three O driving. But the yeah. interesting thing about that is that I compare it to what's ha- what like here in D.C. Um, I I yes, there are certain when it comes to entering contracts and stuff like that, there are certain requirements, right. you know, legal metrics that you have to meet. But yeah. in in the 
context of a medical procedure, if you will. Um, D.C. allows 12-year-old girls to get abortions without parental consent. You know, so these type of laws do exist. I don't necessarily agree, but it's important to note that in the Canada law, so in, and you're right, in 2021, they passed a law to study what they call um, mature minors. Oh, my. So they, they passed oh, a law to is... study. So there is nothing on the books just yet. And they recently, November 4th, just had testimony on the issue of expanding it to include mature minors, but they haven't defined what that is. What mature right, they're not, they're not there yet. So they don't define mature minors because in Canada, mature minors already been determined by the courts on other issues. I see. So mature minor means that the doctor has deemed that you're considered mature. So it's not about being 14, 15, 16. It's about the doctor determining mm. that you are capable of understanding the nature of the, of the question. Well, I mean, that's very so you subjective. Might be 12. It is subjective. It's very subjective. You might be 12 or you might be 17 uh, before you're determined to be a mature minor. Nonetheless, it's all based upon the doctor assessment. And they're not talking about a psychiatric assessment either. And this is the whole thing about euthanasia, assisted suicide, and these laws. They're not talking about psychiatric assessments being required in any way, shape, or form. So you have a really big question here, especially since, you know, we have our euthanasia clinics now. So we had a woman, for instance, in Ottawa who was turned down five times for euthanasia. Five different doctors said to her, no, no, you do not qualify. She contacted the euthanasia clinic in Toronto and she was approved. So there was an article in the newspaper saying, she isn't a terrible, I can't get my euthanasia in Ottawa. So I'm taking the train to Toronto to die on such and such a day at the euthanasia clinic. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy because of course the clinic is far more liberal on the concept than maybe the average doctor would be. But let's go further. We had a case of a woman with MCS, multiple chemical sensitivities. She was 51 years old. She was uh, with her multiple chemical sensitivities. So she had a pretty extreme case. So she couldn't go to work. This, it would be impossible. She reacted to different chemicals. She reacted to different things. She broke out. She just had a really difficult case of multiple chemical sensitivities. And she was living in social housing. So you can imagine being someone who breaks out easily, who, who has a hard time with, and then you're living in social housing in a, in a multi, you know, multi-apartment unit. And she said she couldn't even leave her bedroom because the, you know, cleaning fluids in some of the apartments, she just couldn't even breathe. So you can see the problem here. She was approved for euthanasia. She died by euthanasia when the treatment for MCS is a clean place to live. You know, you need to live in a place that there's no chemicals being used that you're reacting to. And so she needed an individual home, like her own home, whether it be a small little home, condo, whatever that might be, that she has clean. And then she could have lived fine. She didn't want to die by euthanasia. There was an article about it ahead of time. In the end, she did die by euthanasia. That really thrust things. Then we had the issue of the veteran, the veteran with PTSD, a veteran who served our country, who went to Afghanistan, may not have even wanted to go to Afghanistan, but went to serve our country in Afghanistan, comes back with PTSD. He's seeking treatment, and the government agent tells him, oh, well, you can have medical aid in dying. You can have medical aid in dying. And then the government covers it up by saying, oh, this was a one-off. This was a terrible thing that happened. It was a one-off. He never asked for it. He didn't want it, but it's only happened once. Well, now we know that it's happened at least five times. And then at the recent government hearings, uh, a woman who was a Paralympian, well, a former Paralympian, came and said that she had the same issue she was contacting. She's a veteran who became disabled in war, 
you know, probably in Afghanistan. I'm not sure where she was, where she became disabled. She contacted Veterans Affairs because she needed help with a wheelchair ramp to be built at her house, and uh, she wasn't getting it. And they told her, well, if it's, if your life is that bad, you can have medical aid in dying. And she's like, I'm not asking for medical aid in dying. I'm not interested in medical aid in dying. Why the hell? I got to watch my French. You can say, why the hell? You, you can, can say, say hell. It's okay. Yeah, you can say hell. I might have said another word. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, she's saying, you know, why are you offering me this? And so she's now, so now we know that there was at least six cases. We know that several people died of medical aid in dying because they were veterans who contacted this, uh, their you know, helpline. Let me ask you this, you know, while we still have uh, about six, seven minutes left, what is Justin Trudeau saying about all of this? Because I can put on my conspiracy theorist hat and talk about the World Economic Forum. I could talk about Klaus Schwab. I could talk about Justin Trudeau being a graduate of the Young Global Leaders Program from the WEF. But that's my conspiratorial hat. So I'll take that off. I just wanted to put that out there for a second to point that out. But he obviously, Justin Trudeau has been there, what, seven, eight years? Yeah. What is he saying about all of this? Justin Trudeau is all in favor of euthanasia. Justin Trudeau, you have to put this in perspective. So the original law in 2016, uh, there was a lot of hesitancy, even amongst his own liberals. So they added a little clause to the original law, which said that the law had to be reviewed in a five-year, there had to be a five-year review, and it had to start as of June of 2020. Now, we did have We did have COVID then, I understand. But instead, what the government did is they also, instead of doing a review in 2020, what they did is they passed this Bill C-7 in 2021 to expand the law. So Trudeau ignored his original bill, his original law, by first expanding the law before reviewing the law. And then when they announced the review, it isn't actually a review at all. What it is is it's a further discussion on expansions. So we're talking about mature minors. We're talking about people with dementia. We're talking about people who put it in their power of attorney. So you'd be able to put into your power of attorney or your your living will document that this is how you would want to die. And then that would have to be observed, even if you're not capable of consenting at that time. And these are the kind of things we're talking about, rather than actually discussing, is there any problems with the law? Are there any concerns with the law? Are we not concerned that there's no definition? Now, let's go one step further. Even in the controversial cases in Canada, you cannot, you cannot prosecute a doctor for doing something, even if the doctor did something very, very abhorrent and wrong. And the reason is, is our medical aid and dying law has a whole list of things that the doctor must look out for in order to approve someone or the nurse. And then it says the doctor or nurse practitioner must be of the opinion you fit the criteria of the law. By using that word opinion, it's impossible to actually prosecute or punish someone for doing something that was terribly wrong. Now, why is this important? Well, there was the whole case of Alan Nichols. He died in August of 2019 by euthanasia. He was only depressed. This is before we legalized euthanasia for mental illness. So in March of 2023, euthanasia for mental illness alone comes into place in Canada. People with mental illness alone will be allowed to have euthanasia starting in March of 2023. But in 2019, he's only depressed. He had been, he'd gone through ups and downs all of his life. Uh, in fact, the police had brought him to the Chilliwack Hospital to protect him because he was going through a really down time. So they went into his apartment, they took him out, they brought him in to protect him from, you know, suicide. And then he asked to have his life ended. This was not new for Alan. I could go into a long story about Alan, but Alan's family was shocked three days before his death when they got the call saying, oh, Alan's going to die in three days by medical aid and dying, euthanasia. And they were thinking, how could this be? 
Alan's gone through suicidal ideation. He goes up and down all the time. If you give him a couple of weeks, he'll be wonderful again, and we'll have a great time together. But right now, he's in his deep, dark time. And if you look at his records, this is not new for Alan. Yeah. This is not new for Alan. This is his problem. He does go through deep depression. What is... But instead, he died by medical aid and dying. They begged the doctors, please reevaluate Alan. He's not competent at this moment. He needs a bit more time, and then he'll be fine. You know, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll come and they even said, yeah, we're coming to visit right now. And uh, the doctors refused. They said he's been approved. He died. Alex, isn't this in some way kind of eugenics? I mean, for people that are mentally incompetent, they're, they're letting these people, I mean, sure, they, we can say they chose death, but the fact that the government is allowing doctors to, I mean, if, kill them, right? It's, that's effectively what it is, having doctors kill these people who are in some way, quote, defects. Isn't that then eugenics? I, I call it eugenics. A lot of people don't know what eugenics is. Eugenics is a decision that there's certain lives that are not simply uh, not worth living, right? It's, uh, and the concept of, I know we're not getting into the Nazi thing now, because actually eugenics predates any Nazi thing. Eugenics was a 19th century, quote, quote, uh, fake science. It was about evaluating people and saying, oh, well, that person, they're better not off to, and they're better not to live, et cetera. We sterilized people based on our eugenics That's programs right. in the past because we said they shouldn't have children. First Nations. You know, there's a, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, people who, who went through depression, people with disabilities, we sterilized them because they said they shouldn't have children. This is very eugenic, absolutely. Uh, but the fact of it is, is that euthanasia for mental illness, like the psychiatrists as a whole oppose this. But uh, it was also approved in March of 2021. Now they put a two-year moratorium on it, so it'll start in March of 2023. They approved it also based on what they called is discrimination not to allow it. Now, why do I... I don't get the discrimination part. That blows me away. Well, they said... Well, wait a second. They said these people also have a chronic... If it's an... If it's an irreversible medical condition, therefore, they would qualify if it were a physical condition, but because it's a psychological or a mental condition... That's also a disease. Therefore, it should also qualify. And, and we should note, we should note, Alex, there, I think last year, the numbers in Canada were what, 10,000 people did this? A little over 10,000 in Canada last year. And the numbers have been going way up even since then. So every year it's been going up by more than 30% a year. Oh. Alex, let me ask you this before we go. We have about a minute, minute. and a half. Um, are, should people be forced? Meaning, let's say it's not the extremes like this. I mean, some of this, these cases are just beyond the pale. But in cases of somebody who actually is, it is a chronic illness, the person is going to die and it is going to be a miserable death. Should that person be forced to get medical care? Uh, no one should be forced to get medical care. That's not, then that should never be part of the equation, being forced to get medical care. But at the same time, that's a totally different question than having a doctor or nurse involved with killing you. That's, right. These are different questions. But no, you should not be forced to have medical care. If you do not want medical care, no one can ever force you because it is your body. There's no question about that. But at the same time, uh, and this is another thing I'm going to throw very quickly at you. In the Netherlands, when you ask for euthanasia for mental illness, and you can't have that, they do have that. You can you see the data and it shows that there's a few every year. At least there, they say that if you're going to have euthanasia for mental illness, that means you're not dying. Therefore, you must have a one-year waiting period and you must attempt medical treatment. So they're saying if you're going to ask the doctor to kill you, you must first try to be treated for your condition. And, and so that doesn't force people to yeah. treat, be treated. What it's saying is that if you want us to kill you, you must at least try treatment, yeah, and you must at least accept it as a one-year waiting period. 
Because, you know, this is an irreversible decision. Yes. Yeah, that, Once you're yeah. dead, you're not coming back. You know? We'll have to leave it right there. This has just been enlightening and terrifying. And I hope you'll be back with us again, Alex Shattenberg. Uh, of the Euthanasia Prevention, Prevention Coalition. Coalition in Canada. He's the executive director. Thank you so much for that, Alex. Um, we are going to take a quick break. You are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan Abdul will be right back after this. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamaral Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. Comfortably on the right, your favorite conservative cousin, Malik Abdul, and you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Just like trying to shake off that conversation with Alex. I yeah, that's just, fascinating. Uh, the slippery slope wow. thing and, is and rough. Is a, that's an understatement. And so apparently, even in Canada, as part of their expansion, as they're looking into, what did I say, minor... Um, mature adult. Yeah, oh, mature, mature minors. minors yeah. They're also going to look into expanding it to um, palliative care. Pal- uh, pal- palliative oh, care. Palliative care. Right. Yeah. Which so is essentially... When you're um, in hospice. Yeah. Basically. But palliative care, it actually includes from the moment you're diagnosed. From So it could be from not just at the end right. of the illness. It's So, for instance, if it's cancer or something like, like terminal that. terminal cancer. Palliative care begins at the moment that you're diagnosed. The diagnosis. Fourth, a terminal yeah. illness. But see, I'm less hostile like, towards... Right, I get it if you're terminal. Yeah, I, I get, get that, that part. It's I get that. The, the idea, though, that this and... person has mental illness or this right. person is under the age of consent. Or a child that's born with, like, heart, different a defects. Mature, minor. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about a baby yeah. being born with defects. Like, that is... Just but the story of the lady who couldn't, you know, decided that it was easy. It was easier to die. Easier to die yeah. because she couldn't afford medical. Care. And that's the other point. A lot of these things are issues of state, if that makes sense. Right. Like, failure by the failure state. Failure by the state. Whether so, it's a person living on the street, whether it's a person who's like, well, man, because look, we have donuts holes here in the states. Yeah, like if you were loopholes was, all over the place. I ended up with renal failure at seventeen, and what what ends up happening is, okay, I got to work. I got to get um, insurance. And if you work somewhere, you're going to lose your insurance from state. And so you're basically stuck into the issue of poverty until you can kind of overcome it, especially at 17, because it's not like you went to school, you have a career. None of that stuff is on the table. And so what he's talking about is basically there are a lot of people who are stuck in this notion of poverty for the foreseeable future right. because they don't have the despair. potential to work. Despair. And Death in those cases, despair. it's like, okay, what do I do in this situation? If you can't find work, the state is not helping in this situation. What do you do? It's that part. And yeah, people are going to go through depression with right. dealing with stuff like that, which makes... Or extreme illness. poverty. Yeah. Illness. Mental illness. illness in general, yeah. yeah. And I so mean, this is so extreme to me. It's like, this is an issue... Of, a lot of this comes across as an issue of state, if that makes well, sense. Well, I mean, this is this is why it's such a big conversation, uh, which is why uh, tomorrow we'll be talking with literally a pain care physician mm-hmm. that has some opinions about this. And, you know, the fact that it started out 
uh, in California, basically the, the western coastal states, Washington State, Oregon, right. um, having the doctor-assisted suicide by way of prescription. The doctor, right. remember, we jailed Dr. Kaborkin. Yeah, Kaborkin. We put him in jail multiple times. Right. And then yeah. he finally died in jail, yeah. right? I mean, I guess he was just ahead of his time. Um, but, but we're going to have a physician on tomorrow morning early at the 7.30 hour, unless, you know, something changes in the doctor's schedule. Yeah. But he will be joining us to talk about the medical perspective of that. And he's here in Washington, D.C. Oh, so he can come in. Uh, I don't think he's coming in, oh. um, but he'll be able to, to phone in and he's... he's uh, we talk about it. Yeah. Well, it yeah. just... It's a big conversation to be had because it America is. has 10 states plus the District of Columbia that allows medical-assisted suicide. And there are conversations around different states of looking to expand what qualifies and that's how this happens right yeah. with the slippery slope thing yeah, and I'm... the conversation revolving around how do you value life which life is valuable and and do you deem your own life valuable what is and, that part? and who makes that decision of your life being a value meaning you, can the individual make a choice about right. their, whether they want to continue you, living or not are you are you mentally able to are you competent are you 13 yeah I can see DC pass. I can see DC expanding its law to include minors. I can see that too. I can see it. I mean, if if doctors are allowing, I I mean, this is where we we tread into the woke territory because if we are now allowing children to make bodily life-altering changes, see, I wouldn't even allow that as a minor. Yeah, not as a minor. But but we are doing that. Yeah, is my whole point. Is there's because there's no law that stops it. That's the loophole. Yeah, is that a minor that that can get divorced from their parents to say, look, I'm in the wrong body. Mom and dad don't agree with me. I want a divorce from my parents. Yeah. And I want to be allowed to make these decisions to change my body. I'm 16 years old. Okay, you're a mature minor. Yeah. Okay. Have at it. You're, yeah, you're, you're now uh, an adult and you can have at it. Do what you want to your body. To me, you can wait two years, bro. Right. If you can make that choice, yeah, you can wait two years. Yeah, that's you and I. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, it, it is a slippery slope and, and people don't, but it like doesn't have argument. to be. I mean, like, I mean, think of... You can put a hard stop on things. Yeah. But, I mean, because most things that you deal with in life are a gradient, right? Like right. most There's things are... Well, well, right. in life. It's not yeah. binary black and white. And that is that is the whole issue here. But And I keep going back to the Patriot Act is George W. Bush mm-hmm. scared everybody to death about, you know, the brown people over there. Mm-hmm. They're coming to kill you because they, they hate, hate our, li- freedom. our, our freedom, yep. our life, lifestyle, our whatever, American values. So they're going to come kill us. So now we have to listen to your phone calls and <laughs> check your <laughs> right. emails. And so we need to know everybody and yep. do, cast a wide net. If you don't think that slippery slope happens, slippery that slope is proof does happen. right yeah. there. Yeah, it does the Patriot happen. Act is right there to give you the prime example, which Edward Snowden revealed, of how slippery that slope can get once somebody has power and there's monetary interest involved and and in the medical field and big pharma, hello, big pharma, Pfizer, Moderna during COVID, hello, I'm getting on my soapbox right now. But, <laughs> yes, but before look, the headlines. Yes, <laughs> but let me just say, because of that, of the whole uh, interest of big pharma, there's big money in death. So remember, all these people are funding. More money in life. There's big money in, in, Look, in death. If you could treat somebody for 20 years as opposed to of offering course. a person in a year, you make far more money. But not everybody's going to choose to just off. So, you know, yeah. the fact that they're opening up another avenue for more revenue, that's what this would be. And that they're certainly doing it up north in Canada. So we're going to talk about that some more at the 730 hour tomorrow morning from a medical professional who does take care of people with uh, chronic, chronic pain and sometimes terminal illness pain. 
uh, expanding that conversation. So let's get to all the headlines now that I'll get off my soapbox. Um, let's head over to the big breaking story of the day. Brittany Griner. Precious, precious Brittany Griner. Coming home to America in a prisoner swap with Victor Boot, the infamous arms dealer, uh, Russian arms dealer. He has served out, I don't know, 20, 30 years here in the U.S. He was about the, at the tail end of his jail sentence, prison sentence. Uh, he will be allowed to go home. And Brittany Griner coming back to the States. Then other domestic news. Congresswoman AOC, Democrat from New York, under investigation by the House Ethics Committee. Uh, the congressional body made that announcement last night. A statement released by acting chairwoman Susan Wild, who's a Democrat from Pennsylvania and acting ranking member Michael Guest, Republican from Missouri, announced an extension of the inquiry, but did not provide the details as to what the investigation is actually about. So the quote, the acting chairwoman and the acting ranking member of the Committee on Ethics have jointly decided to extend the matter regarding Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It also notes that the complaint was assigned to the committee by, so there was a complaint. We should note that, highlight, there was a complaint. But they should tell what it is. It, know, it's more like, damaging for them not like, to tell hello, it. Oh, you're just putting out a little sprinkle, yeah. like give us at least a little bit. Um, it was assigned to the committee going as far back as June 23rd of this year. So they've kept it under wraps. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly. For a couple of months. I don't know why, because this timing is You unique. would have thought that's something that would have leaked would have, and And before the midterms, right? You would, you would have thought, but all right. Yeah, they have been kind of quietly looking into it since June of this year. And then, oh, what are we going to do? The New York Times members of the News Guild are planning a walkout, a one-day strike on Thursday after union representatives and management were unable to reach a deal acceptable to both sides. Last week, 1,100 New York Times Guild members signed a letter stating that they would walk out if their demands were not met or a reasonable compromise could be reached. Just after 7 p.m. Eastern Time, the Guild released a statement confirming their walkout for Thursday. Quote, the New York Times Guild has announced their official decision to walk out tomorrow, which is today, uh, December 8th, due to the company's failure to bargain in good faith, reach a fair contract agreement with the workers, and meet their demands. The Time Guild Bargaining Committee offered to stay at the table for as long as it took to reach a deal and avert the walkout. But management walked away from the table a little before 7 p.m. Eastern and refused to return with five hours to go. That is very dramatic. Um, I think the New York Times Guild people are mistaken, mistaking themselves for being rail workers, like they're super essential and we're going to collapse, you know, the whole world is going to collapse without gonna the New York Times. We're not going to miss you, bro. <laughs> I'm like, wait, there's nothing out on the New York Times today? Oh, let me guess. Did they black out their social media, put a black, you know, photo? And then they're doing it for 24 hours. It's a 24-hour blackout without Ooh. the New York Times. What? Oh, my. <laughs> what are we What are we to do, Malik? Don't know what I'm going to do. All right, to international news. Hours after declaring rule by, quote, decree law and attempting to abolish the national legislature... Peruvian President Pedro Castillo was taken into custody by police as his base of support is evaporating. 
Peruvian police said in a statement on Wednesday afternoon, quote, in pursuance of our duties prescribed in the law of the National Police of Peru, the officers detained the, they're calling him the ex-president of Peru. Yeah, they've already exed him. <laughs> yes, they've already canceled him. He's ex-president, according to the police, Pedro Castillo. So the announcement came after Castillo dis- declared, this is the, I don't know whether to call him the president or ex-president at this point, but Castillo said, an exceptional emergency government on Wednesday morning and attempted to dissolve the Congress, it seems, in order to block this vote on removing him from office. So he was trying to basically, I don't know, fire, we'll call it for all intents and purposes, firing the Congress so that way they couldn't fire him. So, you know, but either way, the police came and grabbed him. Uh, So he has officially vacated the office. And NATO was aware of the preparations for the latest attacks by Ukraine on Russian military airfields in the Saratov and Ryazan regions, according to Konstantin Gavrilov, the head of the Russian delegation at the military security and arms control talks over in Vienna, saying on Thursday, quote, NATO was aware of the preparations for the latest Ukrainian attacks on the Russian military airfields. We gave them an immediate response with a massive strike on the military command and control system, defense complex facilities, and related energy facilities in Ukraine. No one should have any doubts that this will happen every time if acts of Ukrainian terrorism continue. That's Gavrilov uh, speaking at a plenary session of the OSCE Forum for Security Cooperation. Now, speaking of NATO, the process of joining them Uh, with Finland and Sweden, apparently the fastest in modern history, says NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg on Wednesday. He said, quote, so far, this has been the quickest accession process in NATO's modern history. We have to remember that Finland and Sweden applied for membership in May. And then in June, all NATO allies, also Turkey, invited Finland and Sweden to become members. That's Stoltenberg speaking during an interview with Financial Times Live. Now, he added that Hungary had promised to ratify the accession protocols early in 2023. Then the UN General Assembly on Wednesday adopted a resolution submitted by Russia on no first placement of weapons in outer space. So that is a good one. The resolution was adopted after 122 countries voted in favor of Russia's initiative. So Russia put out this idea, hey, you shouldn't put weapons in space. Uh, With 50 voting against, okay, 50 countries voted against Russia's plan or idea to the UN to not put, to weaponize outer space. 50 countries voted no and four abstained from the vote. The resolution dubbed no first placement of weapons in outer space, simple name, urges all states and particularly those with space capabilities to consider the possibility of, quote, upholding as appropriate a political commitment not to be the first to place weapons in outer space. Then this day in history, back in 1941, mind you, this is the day after Pearl Harbor Day, President Franklin D. Roosevelt delivers the famous Day of Infamy speech to the U.S. Congress just the next day after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And that ushered in the entry of the United States into the Second World War. 
1965, Pope Paul VI signs Second Vatican Council. In 1966, the U.S. and USSR sign a treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons in outer space. And in 2004, the Cusco Declaration is signed in Cusco, Peru, establishing the Union of South American Nations as Pedro Castillo is kindly escorted out of his office by the police. So, you know, goes hand in hand. The so office that he vacated. He vacated. He vacated. Well, I mean, technically that's true. Yeah. Whether by choice or whether the police dragged you out, the office has been vacated. I know, but the, the so. framing of it sounds so different. <laughs> like this is voluntary. Yeah, yeah like yeah. he just gave it up. Yeah. Not so much. All right, that's going to do it. For your headlines this Thursday, December the 8th, you're listening to Fault Lines. Um, we're going to have Ted Rock coming in at 930. And so we're going to take your calls again. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. We will be back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan and Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. Sorry, trying to do two things at once. Um, you guys, we're taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. I want to read right here. This is the producer. Thank you um, for putting this in. President Biden's his administration never forgot about Brittany Griner and that he would continue to work to bring home other Americans suffering such injustices. We so, have people in our jails for pot. And keep in mind, if Griner got caught in the U.S., they would have put her in a cage also, depending upon the state that she was in, yeah, especially if they caught her like at the airport. Oklahoma or yeah. something, you're, you're done. Yeah, but you're you done. know a family that has to be disappointed? Paul Whelan. Because it's not, yeah. So this was, is, I think this is right now. They were trying to get him too. Yeah. It's the second time, I believe the second time he's been, because they did, I think they did another swap in April. Uh-huh. And lost left Paul behind. And so this is... Paul is just watching the people go by. He's just watching the people. And I saw that Biden apparently contacted the Whalen family to let them know that Paul would not be We're still thinking about you. Yeah, we're still thinking about it. We're still thinking about you. It sucks for him, but he's not part of this exchange. It sucks for Paul and his family, and and I'm sure it's terrible for them. (laughs) Yeah, for anybody. But at the same time, I'm pretty sure Paul Whelan is a spy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, they feel bad about it, but come I on, bro. I don't know. I don't know for a fact. Yeah. But I don't know. Based he's, on the he's circumstances. looking spyish. He has like three or four different passports. He speaks multiple languages. He was definitely Manila. in the Marines. Everybody has three or four different like, passports. Have, like Ghislaine yeah. Maxwell. Who doesn't Ghislaine, speak multiple Ghislaine languages? Maxwell <laughs> is a polyglot. She <laughs> speaks like six different languages and has like five different passports. That's right. So, you Just know. Totally normal. Totally normal. Uh, here's the other part. Biden continues. He says, in words from the White House, Mr. Biden said it was his job to make the hard calls to help bring Americans home. I have no idea Just what that stop. means. Just Why is stop. that a hard call to help bring Grit and Griner home? But he's there to make the hard calls. The U.S. basketball star was returning to the U.S. He said, quote, this is a day we've worked for for a long time. Unquote. He continues, quote, we've never stopped pushing for her release. He said Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Griner was in good spirits. She's relieved to finally be heading home. Guess what would have made this in my just from a like a PR perspective, even and a policy perspective. Mm-hmm. If because this is something clearly they've been working on. This isn't it didn't just happen last night. So Biden knew, you know, probably this was coming for up. a while. Right. 
that this was definitely happened. Imagine if Biden coupled this announcement of Brittany Griner with a statement on him instructing the Department of Justice change the scheduling to change of pot. This, yep. I mean, I mean, it makes because otherwise it been great. you're mean, being very hypocritical here. He's like, this is such an injustice that somebody was yeah. put in prison for pot. You mean like in the U.S. In where people state? are put in prison for pot? Like literally in your own in your yeah. own country? Yeah. yeah. It's like, how are you like making that. this argument? It's like, oh, it's such an injustice that it she is. was apprehended. It is like an injustice that. for anybody to be put in a cage for pot, including in the United States. And in the United States, although they are the, the laws, well, what's happened is, and then people get it wrong, the United States hasn't stopped, um, you know, it's not legal to carry cannabis products Across on a plane. State line. Correct. Oh, yeah, people do correct. it now. Right. And I have to, I tell friends of mine, it's like, okay, mm. they're, they're not enforcing it. Um, but as I such, if they catch it though, but it's still illegal. And if they catch it, meaning they may not be, they may be looking for bombs, right. knives, bullets, they're, they're and everything not else. Looking for right. that. You but know. if they come across it, yeah, you could. Is still this be marijuana? In jail. Yeah, yeah, you could still be in jail. Yeah, they can just drag because it away. it's being decriminalized and legalized in places that doesn't that doesn't apply. And I always tell them it doesn't apply to TSA. What you're talking about, if you're going from one state to the other. Those are different laws, and it may yes. be legal in both. If you're going from Washington, D.C. to we're Virginia, driving, TSA. that's one thing. Yeah, we're talking about the Transportation um, Security Administration. Yeah. Meaning, oh, and, and the, I'm sorry, the FAA. Yeah. Airlines. There is no they're such person. They're not playing with that. And, and to your point, he should have did that. Right. He should have did that. I mean, Biden has been screaming, hollering, that this huge. is such an injustice. This is so horrible that the person was locked up um, for holding on to Biden. He should just ask his vice president, Kamala Harris, who was the former AG of California, who put everybody That's away. That's right. And Manila pot. would know. You would know. But I would love to you would know, know whether or not, and maybe we, you know, at some point we can get somebody to talk about it. Is, is that just in action that he can, like, can he as president change the scheduling? Instruct yeah, he can change the scheduling Depart- on pot. Justice yeah. Department. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So then, he can't expunge the records on? by right. himself. He can't go that yeah, far. So that's going to take an act of Congress. Him? Because he's already signaled. That he would be interested, you know, that's something that they were looking he at. He said during the so campaign that on? he would do it. Yeah. I, I, I got have, the clip. We have an S-ton of private prisons, mm-hmm. and we have a pipeline of prisoners yes. to go in to get put in there that make, you know, they make, uh, like, I don't know. Make tens, tons of money off of that. Tens, tens of thousands of dollars we per cannot person. ignore our guy Brave. Yes, so Brave is there. Oh, we got Brave We code. asked for callers, and we do have a caller. Apparently, Brave is waiting for Chocolate us. Chocolate City. Stand by. What's going on, man? Hey, good morning, guys. Can you guys hear me clearly? Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, cool, cool. All right. Um, so, I just wanted to give you guys, I'm pretty sure you guys were um, following uh, during the um, during the big Twitter files drop, the, the Twitter live. By uh, it was being hosted by Mario Nafo, the uh, roundtable show. Yeah, this this is the one where uh, Elon was actually doing the uh, the, the calls, the uh, answer, answering all the questions and talking all this kind of stuff over the last weekend. Well, they're um, they're slated to do a another uh, live session on Saturday at six p.m. Um, featuring Sebastian Gorka, who uh, has always typically been very irritating to me. <laughs> He but. ran away from me, Brave. I was trying to interview him, and at first he was smiling and kind of like creepo. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I forget what I think I was at CPAC several years back, and he first agreed was like, "Oh, yes, okay." And I'm, I'm miking him up, and then he was like, "Well, where where are you from? Where is this again?" And I said, "RT America," and he was like, "What? Oh, what? Yeah. what?" And he just literally demiked and ran away from me, Sebastian Gorka, that coward. 
<laughs> I'll give King Salazar a point that when I told him I was sweat Sputnik, he at the very least let me ask the question. Yeah, he, he didn't run. As, as, once Sebastian realized, he was like, wait, where did you say you're from again? <laughs> I love that. I love that. Go ahead, Brave. I'm sorry. Yeah, Gorka, his, his, uh, I don't know if it's just his accent. He's always been so irritating and condescending to me. But <clears throat> during that whole, um, during that whole uh, Twitter files drop, he, he uh, sat in on both of the um, both of the, the live live sessions, or um, and he's been ve- he's been very insightful, especially on things that happened internally with the Trump campaign. In his last session, they had he was talking about some things that I had never heard before. Um, he was actually going in depth about the deal they were making with allowing uh, Republican establishment uh, members to come on staff. It was, it was a lot of stuff. So they're actually going to be interviewing him again and letting him get a free uh, uh, speaking session in on that Twitter space on uh, this weekend. And I just wanted to give you guys a heads up for it if you want to check it out. Is that um, 6 p.m.? Yeah, 6 p.m. I, I'll, 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 tweet, I'll tweet the link out to you guys, but it's on our Mario um, Naffles channel. Um, he, again, he's the host of, um, what, is, what is it called? The, uh, the Roundtable Show. So, and, and it was pretty, I, I thought it was pretty cool inside. You guys might want to check it out. Tari t- has typically been in these spaces as well, speaking on her uh, situation with Twitter and her deal with the Biden administration. I also very quickly, if I could say, um, you got a session earlier concerning Canada and the death panel. Mm-hmm. As it applies to, and I know it's kind of a jump, but it's in that same space, The um, with this whole transitioning children and stuff like that, the whole transgender thing in the medical community, it's, it's apparently, because uh, there's, there's people that have done stories on it. The uh, Black Conservative did a, a story on it, and um, Kim Kim Iverson covered it as well, um, on the money, the money, that's being pumped into that industry as far as providing this, this stuff for kids, not really caring about the kids' age and stuff. You know, they, they say they're not going to do it to a certain age, but then they're still providing these services just because of the money driver. So, yeah, the slippery slope is real. Yeah. I mean, that's, I don't like that policy at all. I mean, it's like, look, man, I. Some of these kids, JT, are prepubescent. Yes. They haven't even hit puberty. It's like they have a clear idea on what they want. It's like, okay, well, you can wait a little. Right. You're, you're 11. And, and we are in the body autonomy era. And, and they take that, people take that to the... And I'm fine with body autonomy. I mean, but it's... Look, as a... I'm not a parent. And, of course, so I only the, had but adult the argument, kids. The body autonomy, the autonomy argument is, is that it extends to kids. I know, but we don't like, allow kids dog, to drink alcohol. If your I dog agree. was was wanting to run, right, if he wasn't on a leash, if he, he wouldn't run into a car. the street into a car, I would take serious qualms him. with that. Right. right. You would stop him from running into the car. He may survive. Sure. Yeah. He may be fine. Or he may be squashed to death. I know, and it's my responsibility as a parent to ensure that that kid doesn't do anything irreparable before that kid becomes an adult. Right. They make their own to choice to destroy their choice. lives. Well, right. Brave's got several kids, so. <laughs> I mean, most parents agree. You have, if you're under my roof, you have no bodily uh, autonomy yes. until you're 18 or at minimum, at minimum 18 and actually until you get out. So, yes. <laughs> until you get out. Look, yes. I'm okay with giving some to a kid. I mean, but, I mean, I guess for me, my job as a parent is to not, Allow, look, it's my job to protect that kid, right? I mean, any parent's job is to protect that kid. And if it's something that is unforeseeable, where it's like, I have no idea if that kid is going to regret this choice in five years, 10 years, then I'm probably going to leave it up to that kid to make when they become an adult. You know, on on the sexual reassignment surgery, I mean, would you be okay with your kid showing up at your house with a face tattoo looking like a peachy folder from 1995? Of course not. Probably not. Yeah, especially if I think that kid is going to regret that later on. Right. Yeah. So, Brave, thank you, my man. Oh, always appreciate you calling. Um, yeah, that's, I don't get the body autonomy thing. I mean, we, we don't allow kids to drink alcohol. There has to be a line. Yeah, there has to be a line. We don't allow kids to vote 
even though we're we'll send them off the war and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, we don't allow them to drive below a certain age. There's all sorts of things that we don't necessarily allow kids to do. But I think that the the lobby, the well lobby or the interest, the LGBTQ plus interest. I think it is so powerful that people, which is why we're reevaluating these things yeah. about what, you know, kids, you know, we're literally talking about kids. We had that debate here in D.C. around the vaccine. It was a big discussion on whether or not kids and they ultimately the council um, decided and a judge overturned the council's decision to allow kids to get vaccinated without parental consent. As young as 12 years old. Parental it, consent. Without parental consent, but it was written into the law that, and kind of similar to what we were talking about in Canada, that a... Um, mature minor. Uh, uh, not, not a mature minor, like a, a, a medical professional had to evaluate the child and say that it's okay, the child understands. Right what's happening with the vaccine. And so because very of that. Very subjective. That yeah, is very well, subjective. Is, this is kind yes. of like cops interrogating kids, right? Yeah. Like you take a, a 12-year-old into the right. room with I'm a cop. Okay with right. I'm not okay with that either. I mean, in I, I there's certain problems with that. They were okay, but like, as I said, a judge overturned it. Yeah, the judge was like, no, that parental has You've consent. gone too far. Yeah. Wow. Well, there has to be lines. There just has to be. All right. On that one. Uh, I mean, and like you said, the euthanasia thing. Look, if, if I... There are certain parts of that what I would agree with. I the too. way that Canada is well, doing it just seems to be well beyond the pale. That's too expansive. Extremely expansive. I mean, at the point where they're like a mentally ill person. Because after a while, I started to question whether or not this is something that the state is doing in they order to— They deliberately made—and we heard Alex allude to that. They deliberately did not define what, your, what chronic condition means. So it doesn't—it could be, I have chronic asthma. Yeah. I have chronic acne. <laughs> I have chronic whatever, right? I have chronic back pain. The, the story that he highlights on his website with uh, Amir Farsood, yeah. he had uh, chronic back problems, okay? Sciatica. Really? Like, that, that's going to be enough to yeah, say, you know, doc, yeah. doc, just put me out of my misery. Yeah, it goes too extreme. I mean, look, from my standpoint, Alex, he is pushing a very specific narrative from the organization that he's with. I don't think he's being dishonest, so I'm not saying that. Well, I think he also said that he understood, like, the terminally ill yeah. part. And yeah. I think most Well, he said he disagreed with that, though. His thought was that all things been equal. The moment that you start is a slippery slope, and that was his argument. And 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 I, I would say we got to draw the line. We got to draw a line. Somewhere. Yes. Somewhere. Yeah. Um, most things in life are gradient, right? And at some point, you draw a line on the gradient. But yeah, slippery slope, it is real. Um, but look, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. We'll be back. Ted Raw. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. But I want to bring in our guests. We're joined with Ted Rawl. Ted Rawl is a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. Ted, what's going on, my man? How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. How are you doing? 
I am doing great. Thank you for joining us at such an early notice or such a last minute notice. Much appreciated. Um, I want to get into Jim James Baker being fired. That's what I want to get into first. Um, James Baker, he was fired on Tuesday by Elon Musk for basically suppression of information. And this is one of those people who was anti-Trump, who was big on this notion of Trump in Russia. And I guess Musk hadn't paid attention to the fact that the guy was still there. But eventually, at the point where the Twitter files were released, it's kind of hard to make a justification to keep him on the company. I mean, Musk himself basically said these guys were biasing themselves towards one political party over the other. And this stuff was basically nonsense, a paraphrase. Give me your take on that. Why do you think it took so long for him to get rid of Baker, for one thing? Um, and you can even go into the role that Baker basically, well, we went into that before, the role that Baker basically played in all this. But why do you think it took him so long to get rid of Baker in this situation? Well, you know, um, I can only speculate here, but I think it's exactly what you said, Jamal. I think, uh, you know, Musk didn't know that the dude was still there. I think, you know, guys like Musk, and I don't mean this, you know, about him personally. I mean, just CEOs, people who fly at that level, uh, they don't, don't really have a lot of interaction uh, with the workings, even at a you know sort of upper middle level like Baker was at, um, you know at the companies that they're in charge of, they do, you know it's you know we think maybe of a company that has like a hundred people and the boss knows everybody who works for them, but that's just not how it works there. You know when I was uh, canned by the LA Times, uh, the the uh, ownership that had fired me and smeared me changed. They sold the paper to an individual. And I thought, oh my God, well, this is totally going to change everything. They're going to drop the, they're going to, you know, stop like screwing me legally and uh, and they're going to want to settle my, my lawsuit. Instead, things just kept going. They kept the same, they kept the same lawyers on. The lawyers kept filing the same motions. Their posture didn't change. And I was like, how is it possible that, you know, the new owner, this guy, Dr. Soon Xiang, doesn't know what's going on? Well, he didn't know what's going on. And, you know, these companies just sort of keep going on autopilot. And uh, there's I think it's just inertia. So, you know, when it was probably when it was brought to Musk's attention, uh, I'm sure someone tweeted at him or something and then or someone internally. And then it's like, oh, oh, right. OK, I better take up that, that piece of that piece of trash fell on the ground. I better I better pick pick that up and throw it away. And so it says Musk responded to TB's tweet of the article by announcing that Baker was, quote, was exited from Twitter today due to concerns of his possible role in suppression of information important to public dialogue. Of course, we're talking about the Hunter Biden laptop story. It says Talibi, um, Taibi later said part of the reason that Baker was fired was because Baker himself had vetted the first installment of the Twitter files and had delayed the release of the second installment without Musk knowledge. Quote, on Friday, the first installment of the Twitter files was published here. We expected to publish more over the weekend. Many wondered why there was such a delay. So, um, Taibi tweeted, Quote, we can now tell you that part of the reason, part of the reason why. On Tuesday, Twitter Deputy General Counsel and former FBI General Counsel James Baker or Jim Baker was fired. Among the reasons, vetting the first batch of Twitter files without knowledge of new management. Musk confirmed in a tweet Tuesday evening that he, quote, only discovered this on Sunday, unquote. Musk gave Baker a reason or re um, chance to explain himself before the termination, but his explanation was unconvincing. But you know what's weird to me is, so Elon buys... Twitter, and they knew it was coming for months. And so here he is a couple weeks into ownership and nobody bothered to tell Elon that, <laughs> hey, do you know this dude is kind of like a famous FBI attorney? Probably nobody did tell him. That's um, my point. Yeah, like nobody bothered to. <laughs> there, by the way, there's something that needs to be said because no one ever talks about it. 
general counsels, corporate counsels, are kind of usually tend to be crappy lawyers. Uh, they're tend they're they're sort of lawyers who can't hang out a shingle themselves or get a job at a uh, you know at a big firm. Um, you know, it's kind of like yeah, it's it's kind of like civil service for lawyers. It's so you don't it's easy. Uh, they don't have to really, uh, you know, work real hard. They're not getting, you know, they don't have to bill uh, at literally in six-second increments like they would at a major firm. Um, so, you know, it's. I tend to look down on those people. So one of the things, and I think one of the things that could have been a factor in why it took so long, is I'm not convinced. Well, definitely Musk, but I'm not convinced many people knew who Jim Baker actually was. So if you see a name, you just see Jim Baker. I don't think that people connected Jim Baker to, because he actually, as I was reading, he got to Twitter, um, I think, in the spring of 2020. So before even the November election, Jim Baker was already at Twitter, and now we're two years in. I think a lot of people may have forgotten or not have known he was there. that Jim Baker was there at all or connected him to, like, 2016. Because if you just see a Jim Baker, you don't necessarily—it's it's not a name. Baker, yeah. Like, you would know yeah. Elon Musk. Like, you would know Manila Chan. A common name. Baker is—yeah, Baker is so your eyes could just be like you. You've probably met several Jim Bakers in your life already. Yeah, it's such a generic name. Right. And and, and the, the larger point about Jim Baker and what he was doing, so he was a general counsel and vice president, but him working along with Vidaya, Vijaya, Vijaya Gade. Gade, if you think of what it was, the type of control that they had apparently, because as we're reading, well, Jack Dorsey didn't seem to know what was going on because they were keeping him out of it. Absentee owner. Absentee owner. But think about what they were doing behind the scenes. So, you mean, if you're able to keep the CEO kind of out of a story, like a decision like this, like such a decision to not just suppress information, but claim, but do it under your hacking policy to not include the CEO. Well, I mean, for Jack's part, though, not only he was absentee, yes, because he physically wasn't present, but, you know, he was, he's got, like, all kinds of weird health kicks that he's on. Like, he only eats once a day or something and only yeah, drinks Yeah, but to keep X him out of, of it, though. And I only eat once a day myself. Don't mean I'm out of it. And so that's <laughs> no, no, I mean, he's, like, emaciated yeah. and, like, grungy looking. Because he was looking rough at one point, right? He yeah, was, yeah. You know, he has the he, whole beard thing. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's going through some stuff at the end of Twitter. And, and you can... <laughs> You can visual. You can literally see it. It's 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 a very visual, like obvious sign that somebody has deteriorated. Yeah. But you know what? Speaking of Jack Dorsey and Ted, I want to get you know your thoughts on it because I, to me, and I said it before, I actually agree with Ted and I agree with Jonathan Turley and others. So Jack Dor- Dorsey came out and essentially told um, um, Elon to release everything. Yeah. And, you know, in the, you know, transparency, blah, 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 release everything. I'm on the transparency side. Um, I do think that there is, I understand why they would do this kind of piecemeal sort of thing. But I think it would be much more helpful if you just, like, if Matt Taibbi was able to get it all in one, get it all in one. But I, I don't think the drip drip is necessarily helpful to the public discourse because we're filling in the blanks on a lot of stuff. Well, hold on here, though. There, there's a there's precedent that has been set 
right, by way of Julian Assange, who just published everything. And part of the argument the U.S. government made on Julian Assange is that he published things that were unredacted besides all this other, you know, bunch of hooey nonsense that they're charging him with. So for the Twitter people to be a little more vigilant of what they're giving and and giving it out in tranches— I get that because this is them giving it to them. But those aren't state secrets. Yeah. And, they're, they're, and they went after him. The, but, I mean, the CIA but, files but, was but the I'm thing But I'm saying the president is set about how they'll go after journalists. And for Matt Taibbi, who is a very respected journalist, um, very ethical, I think it is it is safer for him as well. I mean, he's already getting but death threats and stuff. But why would the government stuff, so. go after him, though? They'll find any reason. You know that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's one thing for, the, for at least the CIA files. And... And and that's the other thing. Julian Assange was willing to work with those guys on pulling out certain names from the, even those files. So it wasn't like a situation where he was just not, you know, like just ignoring him on that stuff. The CIA files were brutal. I get the tranche release, yeah. though, tranche by tranche. Like, I, there's probably just so, so, so much to go Voluminous. through. Yeah, there's probably a ton of stuff. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a workflow thing for Taibbi, right? I mean, he's yeah. one guy. I mean, he, this was not done through Rolling Stone, right? This right. was done through his personal Substack, So it's just him on his home computer. And, uh, you know, it, it, you know, no matter how much coffee he has going, <laughs> it's going to take a while to get through it all. Ted, I want you to hear a quote. This was after the Twitter files were released. And Biden, Biden's press secretary was basically asked the question about what does she think about the Twitter files? Because, you know, the, the closing or the, the locking up the story itself, trying to claim that this is Russian hacking and all this other stuff, the meetings that they were having, basically prepping that this something was going to come down the pike that was going to be this kind of Russian hacking and everything else. And the clear bias that there seemed to be of them removing certain information from Democrats, um, you know, that they didn't necessarily like. This is her response to this. Let's play the clip. We see this as a, a an interesting or a coincidence, if I may, that uh, uh, that he would so haphazardly, uh, Twitter would so haphazardly push this distraction. Uh, that is a that is a full of uh, old news, if you think about it. Um, and uh, at the same time, Twitter is facing very real and very serious questions uh, about the rising volume of anger, hate, and anti-Semitism on their platform, and uh, how they're letting it happen. This is. We we see this as an interesting, uh, you know, cons- uh, you know, coincidence, uh, and uh, we, and you know, it's a distraction. I love. God, you can't love, go after her, JT. She's uh, a protected person. She's a minority, <laughs> a woman, a lesbian, and an immigrant. She knocks. She checks four boxes. She's untouchable. She's untouchable. Don't you dare criticize her. I love nesting dolls. This idea of a distraction within a distraction. Right. She's like, yeah, I think this is a distraction. There's so much rising hate on Twitter. And there's all of these questions are being asked. It's such a weasel word. Questions being asked. That's the beat your wife thing, right? It's like, how often have you beat your wife? What do you mean how often have I beat my wife? And then now you're talking about beating your wife. Give me your take on this. I mean, her, she is basically dancing, not wanting to deal with the reality that it seems as if one of the main political parties is using a social media platform to basically silence certain speech that they don't necessarily like, especially around the idea of his kid, around his kid. Give me your take on this. Well, first of all, it's incredibly entertaining to, to listen to that clip. Uh, just, It's always fun to watch someone who's in a really miserably uncomfortable position have to defend the indefensible. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I, the, I could hear, listen to that all day over and over on loop. Uh, there's, uh, you know, the old news. I want to just point that out, highlight that <laughs> point out. Whenever someone uh, in PR says that's old news, okay, so translation, it's true. 
Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, it's not like we're not saying it's false. We're not saying it didn't happen. We're not saying it's disinformation. We're saying it's true. So, uh, you know, old news is kind of, uh, you know, that was kind of uh, Barack Obama's kind of brilliant defense uh, when he was called out for having you know, used cocaine as a young man uh, when he ran in 2008. And he's like, and his, his campaign was like, well, that's old news, which was true because he had exposed it himself in his autobiography. Right. And uh, that was a really smart, uh, that was definitely the way to, to handle that. And I don't think having used cocaine should disqualify you years later from right. running for office. Uh, you know, maybe it should disqualify you from working for Burisma at the time that you're using <laughs> cocaine, but that's a different question. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, so basically, look, she's admitting it's true and she's dodging the issue here. And the issue is, uh, should uh, the government ever be in the business of telling or suggesting, strongly suggesting to the media what it should publish or not publish and should, and part Two to that question is, should the media be open to those requests from the government? And I think most readers, most viewers, most Americans would say would answer no to both of those questions. Uh, but, you know, obviously that's that's the uncomfortable part for the powers that be. You know, they are having a field day, Grant, Glenn um, Greenwald and many others, they're having a field day with Corinne Jean-Pierre's um, press conference where... Well, the the one that the statement that you just read from yeah. her, they're having a field day on it. And one of the things, so they've gone into satire uh -huh. mode now. So Green, Glenn Greenwald posts, breaking as an online safety ex expert, my preliminary study reveals a severe spike over the last five days in hate speech and united attacks from liberal corporate journalists against Matt Taibbi. So he's <laughs> he's flipping that around to talk about, which is actually true. It's true. That's the part, right? It's true. They're hitting the guy. <laughs> They're hitting this guy for basically going through primary sources yes. and releasing data and, from and primary the sources. Satire, the real satire in that is that, yes, he's claiming that he's an online safety sec expert, yeah. which would make him as much of an online safety expert as Karine Jean-Pierre, who makes this statement that the media doesn't follow up back on, because you would think, oh, wow, do you have some metrics? Yeah. Like, how do you know there's right. a rising tide of hate in right. the company? But no one says, where did, where did you get that from? It's just accepted that, oh, well, this must be true because she said it. Yeah. Like, that in and of itself is a problem within this context of talking about Twitter and how the government is influencing how it runs its business. Here you have Karine Jean-Pierre saying, all that hate and stuff that y'all, while you worried about us in this old news, you need to be worried about all of this hate right. now on Twitter. Yeah. What? It's crazy, Ted. Uh, it is crazy. Uh, you know, it, it's true. I, that hadn't. I, I really love that point. It's true. It's true. People say things like this these days as if they were, you know, based on some kind of well-known article that we all knew that there had been a study that someone had tracked, like Benai Brith had tracked uh, anti-Semitic talk uh, chatter on on Twitter, and that it was up twenty-six percent over the last week. But, you know, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's just pure fiction. She's literally just making that up. The part that also always, uh, you know, kind of surprises me in these kind of scenarios is how is it that she was so poorly prepared? I mean, she had to know she was going to be asked about this and, and that's the best answer she could come up with. I mean, 
If so, that's really sad. And she's still reading these prepared. Trust me, I totally get that, you know, you're being up there and it's much easier said than done. People, you know, they may mock her, but that that's not a that's a tough position. Oh, yeah. For for, for sure. The best of of comms people to do. But she is pretty bad and she <laughs> hasn't gotten worse. She doesn't have the nimble. She's not nimble enough to be able to give like a coherent answer right. to a policy question without reading word for word. Like her paraphrasing is just awful. And so that's how we get to this statement that she made. Because if you read, if you saw the statement, she starts up by saying, we find it interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not in <laughs> yeah. the prepared. That's not. What in does the that prepared. even mean? Yeah, it doesn't mean anything. And so essentially what she's saying is that we find that he did it at this particular time. She was questioning the timing of it as if what's coming down. Like what what is Elon Musk's advantage in doing this now? And so that's where she says, we find it interesting well, dude, that he's, he's doing it now. For like three weeks. He just got it. Yeah. Oh, he, he just got to it. It was pretty. It was actually pretty quick. I think. Consider. Yeah. I mean, he's also he's also got this Tesla and this space thing. Right? Yeah, yeah. He has other things, right? Twitter is not his. Other companies. Not to, like not to mention, he, he's a big dad. He's a big dad, right? Ten kids, eleven kids, yeah. whatever it is. Is that many kids? Yeah, I've said it before. He was racing yeah. Nick Cannon, like oh, to who can populate man. the earth. Yeah. She just. She wasn't just joking. I was not joking. <laughs> I'm serious. Like it, I don't know who has more kids today, and I literally mean today. Yeah. Because Nick it's Cannon. either well, Elon or Nick. Because I don't, they're not born yet. So I guess the two that he has in at waiting. At the same time, yeah. So right now, I think Elon's ahead. But pretty soon, Nick Cannon's two pregnant baby mamas will put him ahead of Elon. <laughs> Jeez, so, man. That is rough. Like you said, yeah. they're trying to populate the earth. Like, but dude, we you, should not ignore the role of Jim Baker. And I hope that more people <laughs> continue to talk about Jim Baker because he is not some... Just backroom play. He no, plays I tell you an what, integral Ted, you know there's a revolving door between anybody that works in Washington with these three-letter agencies. He's going to get a big fat contract from like MSNBC or Fox. Or I don't know, whoever, somebody, right? Yep, yep. Yes, totally. MSNBC security expert. Mm. Tech security expert. Something like that. Law uh, you analyst know. or whatever. Yeah, I mean, if things go really bad for him, he'll end up, you know, as a college vice president or president somewhere, um, you know, uh, like like Ken Starr, right? He ended up at Pepperdine. Oh, that's right. Yeah. True, true. Yeah. Let me ask you this. So there's, all, there's always those kinds of gigs, there's, right? They it's, always get a soft landing, Ted. Yeah. Yeah, they they do. It's uh, you know, it's it, someone needs to write a book either called like the CEO class or the executive class, which is basically about the cl the class of these quote unquote leaders, uh, scare quotes intended, uh, where basically they don't have any specialized knowledge about any particular field, uh, but they revolve between government and different corporations, and the only skill set they seem to have is that they notice how to sit behind a uh, well-polished wooden desk or conference room table. But they're good uh, at and, it. And, they, and they're very good at collecting wire transfers to their uh, Cayman accounts. But otherwise, they really don't, kind of don't really know anything about anything that they're in charge of. But uh, it, it's kind of like, how do you get into that? Like, how do you first break into that? It's, right there. it's interesting. But it's, they break into it because they don't know anything about it. Like meaning, like, meaning there's some people who you put into positions where you need them to give a wrong answer. It's like if I go to this person and say, hey, I need you to give me an answer on this, 
And I'm, I know that this person is going to give me the wrong answer that well, I want like for this meme. particular issue. You post a picture and you tell people to caption it, wrong answers only. Wrong answers only. And that's what that person is there for, sitting behind the desk, collecting those checks, giving those wrong answers. Let me, let me ask you this, this salacious relationship between media and politics, where a politician may go to a media person and create a relationship with that media person and uses that person to give out information. So some of these things would be, okay, I'm going to give you a, a tip about something. In other situations, you may give the person information just because you want to hit a political opponent. It seems that social media is, weirdly enough, almost being maneuvered in a similar way based on the associations with the political parties and the media company itself. Give me your take on that. I mean, this was something that was taking place with mainstream media in general, correct? I mean, now it's almost like moving over into the next, I guess you can say, era of media um, that we have being social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. Yeah, there's like kind of, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm often a person who has sort of very dogmatic views about ethics, but this is one of those things where I don't really know that there's a good answer. I mean, you could argue that, you know, Deep Throat manipulated Bob Woodward, you know, uh, and the, and uh, that those guys were basically just being fed information, dribs and drabs, uh, you know, in a way that suited certain parts of the deep state. You can argue that, you know, I mean, look, Musk uh, ordered gave material to Taibi. Obviously, he had an agenda to do that, although Taibi just asked, right? And then Musk is like, okay. And uh, and I mean, and so it's like, is there anything really wrong with that? No, as long as, you know, members of the media are deeply cynical and understand that every time they get a leak or a drib of information, that there's a drab they might be missing and that might fill out a different, a fuller picture or an entirely opposite, oppositional picture. Uh, picture and that they need to be cynical about it, about their sources. And I think that's the problem is that too many reporters and media, social media and traditional media, um, you know, they're, they get really cozy and grateful to their sources. And they, they think that, you know, they're working because of the access that they have. But the truth, instead of going out there and digging and getting stories and not sitting at your desk, I mean, you know, if you go to uh, the newsroom at the New York Times now, it's quiet. It's like a, basically like a- strike uh, today. <laughs> uh, but even, it wouldn't have looked much different yesterday. Uh, you know, it, it's quiet. It's like an insurance company office. Uh, and everyone's at their desk talking into their phones or just typing, uh, more likely just getting their news off their computer. Uh, if you went to the New York Times 30, uh, well, 25 years ago, I know I went there, most of the desks were empty because reporters were out in the field. Uh, talking to actual people in real places. Uh, and they knew they couldn't do their work from their desk. They certainly couldn't get it off the internet. So it's, I think, you know, I think the, the problem sort of starts there. Oh, you mean just in this idea that the relationships that they create because they need access well, and everything else. Access, yeah, we call access. it access journalism, yeah. right? Like that's the whole reason. It's passivity. They're, 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 they're sitting there waiting to be, they're like robins waiting in the, in the nest to be fed. You know, to be, as opposed mouth. to going out yeah. and going and getting it. <laughs> that's yeah. true. Yeah, but that's true. But the, but but at the same time, Ted, being a reporter, like the reason I'm I'm kind of unable to get all of these things. Number one, because they you know the maligned they maligned uh, anything Russia related, but mostly it's because it's access journalism. Because the people that have the power and that have the stories, you know, that you want to know about, they won't talk to me because they know I won't play ball. That's the thing. I won't be nice about it. And they know that. So the mainstream media um, 
folks like at the New York Times, they want the access to these people. So they, you know, they print these stories that are not comparable to the stories that were printed 25 years ago. And it's, um, yeah, access journalism is toxic. And also it has to do, there's a class component to this too. When um, reporters were, uh, you know, often high school, gra- uh, you know, dropouts or basically, or graduates, and they worked them their way up, you know, they they were never going to play golf at the country club uh, with, with the local banker, right? Um, they were, they were kind of like scoundrels and they drank hard and smoked a lot. And, you know, now, I was now they, were, they were working class people. And like, uh, you know, now... You know, you go to Columbia J School, you have to be from a rich family. You have to be because there's no financial aid to go to Columbia J School. So uh, no matter, you know, even if you come out of, uh, you know, college with a 4.0. So, uh, you know, those people are just inherently less skeptical of the powers that be and more trusting that they mean well. Yes, especially if daddy plays golf with so-and-so on Capitol Hill at the country club and so-and-so, and and you can't say anything bad about daddy's friend. It's like, that's Bob. Bob is a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. He came to my bat mitzvah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Ted, always appreciate you joining us, man. Ted Rawl, political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. You can follow Ted on Twitter, at Ted Rawl, and read his cartoons and articles at rawl.com. Yeah, fascinating stuff. And to your point, the Baker thing is big. Like, that's not something people can kind of underplay or underestimate. I mean, a story that could have potentially affected a presidential election was buried. Yes. That's a big deal. And then you get the investigative functions or investigative um, devices within the context of the government itself being part of the thing that's getting them to kill that story. Yeah. Russiagate, not real. DNC gate. Yeah. Probably real. Probably real. Probably real. So, look, I want to thank all of you guys. I want to thank our engineer. I want to thank our producers. I want to wish our producer to get well soon, one of them. Um, I want to thank Malik Abdul, Manila Chan. My name is Jamal thank Thomas. Thank you, JT. Thank you, Rumblers, all the listeners. That's right. We are over the hump. Tomorrow is going to be Friday. We will see you bright and early. Y'all have a good one. See you in the morning, guys. Fault lines. 